This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, friends. Top of the morning to you. Hope you're having a great day. Welcome to the program. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. My, oh, my. Happy Hot Dog Day. Hot Dog, Hot Dog, Hot Dog. It's a great song. Yeah. Let's see Tofu put a song together like that. <laughs> tofu will never be able to uh, put together such a nice jingle. What do you put on your hot dog? Uh, everything I can, except onions. Oh, yeah. Mm. Banana peppers, those are nice. Hmm. little chili wouldn't be bad. A little cheese on my hot dog. Or I just like... Uh, a little ketchup, mustard. Okay. I even like a little mayo on my hot dog. No. Yeah. Cheese filled? Oh, that would be great. Why not? While really? we're at it. Yeah. Wow. It's hot dog day. If you haven't had a hot dog in a long time, you're probably healthier than the rest of us. <laughs> but hey, you, you know, need to celebrate it. When I worked at In-N-Out Burger, yeah. during the summertime at their employee parties and at the softball tournaments, mm-hmm. The only times that they would bring out the In-N-Out hot dogs. Oh, really? Yes, that's something I don't know that, that I've you ever can't had. Go in, in and in order and in their stores. So they just bring it out on on special occasions. Yes, like today, hot dog day. Hot dog day. What do you put on your hot dog? Uh, if it's a J Dogs mm. or a K Dogs hot dog, I I just like the K Dog sauce, the special sauce, and jalapenos, <sighs> and that's it. You like a hot dog? Oh yeah. I'm not into that. I am a hot dog. You know, Terry can't get enough of uh, the the special meat called hot dog. Huh? Did you just get a little, you just had to swallow. A little bit. Why You're swallowing that? a hot dog. It's just kind of like mystery meat. Is it even meat? We don't know. <laughs> I've heard all kinds of stories. But it's, whatever it is, it's Americana and it's but why? yummy. Why is it Americana? Yummy! And by the way, why do the Pol- why why do Polish dogs get such a such a good reputation? Where did you Poland feel, come from? You feel cultured when you eat them. Is that it? Just like the meat. The meat is cultured and you'll feel cultured. <laughs> I love it. Really, I really do love hot dog day. And I think any day could be a hot dog day. Just like, you know, hey mom, can we pull some of those hot dogs out and have hot dogs on Sunday? Yeah. Yeah. You mean like pull them out of the ground? Did you guys grow them? Yeah, we grow them in the ground. Yeah. They're a little dirty, but once you rinse them off, mm mm-mm, good. They taste better when you do it yourself. So today we celebrate hot dogs. Uh, We also, we've got a lot to talk about. Um, Apparently, boy, uh, Donald Trump, you know, he's not having a great record. Wrong. Of passing legislation. Wrong. He says he is. Yeah. But he says he's passed more than any other president. Well, except FDR, because he was dealing with the Great Recession. Right. But, I mean, this, this is, I guess, legislation that people had to, to negotiate and legislate. He, he, his, he's passed more by just signing things. Yeah, like executive order. Yeah, that doesn't seem like legislation. His first was when he declared the day he was inaugurated a national holiday. Oh, yeah. That makes sense. I mean, or sometimes... Day of remembrance or whatever right. it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Sometimes you wait... Till you've like become the greatest president of all time, 
before you start talking about it? Well, then before others would start. Or maybe you let the historians decide. You're wrong. (laughs) Yeah. Apparently we're wrong. Either way. But then he he backed up and he says that he thinks because he didn't want the Washington Post to give him any more Pinocchios because he doesn't like the Pinocchios. Oh, he doesn't? Yeah. Well, I mean – When they fact check, they give number of Pinocchios on how big of a lie this is. Right, right. And he said, I better say think because the Washington Post is watching. Oh. So he is – he's kind of regulating himself a little bit more. He made a joke. Hey, there are no strings on him. Yeah. He's not a – he's not a puppet. He's not a – he's not a doll. Mm. Anyway, his his uh, his ratings are they're taking a hit. Depends on who you talk to, right? People that support him, they really like him. Yeah, which kind of you know, and the idea that you're a supporter, you're going to like him. So his approval rating among supporters is fairly high. Well, but I guess his overall approval rating as a president oh, yeah. is the lowest we've ever had as a president. But you have up to, to this point. You have to talk to say Democrats about that. Why? Well, because you know they ask a general cross section of the population. So you're going to get people that didn't, that aren't supporters of well, him. They're just saying they don't support him. And that that, that is one of the issues. Is that um, interestingly, President Trump's numbers are at um, the lowest of any president up to this point. But hmm? Democrats are also uh, seen as obstructionists right now, right? More so than you know. Except that shouldn't matter since you have both houses of Congress. Well, and the White House, except it may not bode well for them in the midterms if they're well, seen as obstructing the work of Mr. Trump. Anyway, all that <laughs> excitement straight ahead. It's fun to watch this as it, as it yeah. rolls out every day. Well, a lot like, of people, some of this is absurd. Well, a lot of people are exhausted. Well, there's that, too. But uh, that's why we do the show to make sure that you you see a maybe healthier, lighter side of the whole thing. I mean, sure, it is just a democracy. Right. Probably the greatest democracy of all time. If we should say so ourselves. Yeah. And uh, so so we'll get to that. Plus, we're going to get to some clear thinking about the hard issues. Boy, we have got – we've got an emeritus professor from Yale that is uh, – that has put together a book. Uh, it's going to walk us through how to actually think more clearly about some of the most difficult issues we face as a country, immigration, poverty – religious rights. And the problem might, I mean, there's a lot of problems with it, but how do you get clarity in the thinking? Because you probably can't solve problems that aren't clear. And it seems like a lot of times our biggest issues get muddied. We muddy them up so we can't really solve them. So we'll get to that in a few minutes as well. Plus, uh, you know, of course, we'll do the headlines with Terry and just more empty news uh, from the Matt Townsend news team. First on the scene, fifth on the facts. That's the MT News Team, first on the scene, fifth on facts. And then the Apple Bite, because we're affiliated with Apple. Washington State Apples, that is. Yes. Hmm. Now, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what's going on? Police in Minnesota reveal on Tuesday that a loud sound was heard before officers opened fire on an Australian woman who called 911. Justine Damon, 40, was fatally shot on Saturday by officers responding to her 911 call about a possible sexual assault near her home. The noise that preceded the shooting allegedly startled the officers 
Uh, investigators with the Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension said Off- Officer Muhammad Noor, who fired at Damon, hit her in the abdomen and has refused uh, to this point to give any interviews to investigators. Reports out this morning say that the loud sound may have been aerial fireworks. What? But investigators are having trouble finding out more because, again, the officer will not speak with them. The Australian Prime Minister and the woman's family are looking for answers. Oh, wow. So maybe startled, maybe by fireworks. There or was one story that he fired through the door of the car as she was standing in her pajamas, as she called, leaning my, uh, in, talking to the car. Yeah, so many questions, mm. but he's not talking to anyone. Okay. Uh, Don is not doing so well in recent days. Don has become noticeably less defined, and despite whatever ambitions Don may have once held, any change of doing something monumental is quickly fizz- fizzling out. Is this Don our boss? Meanwhile, on the other side of the country, Hillary is brewing. This is not a political drama. It's a meteoro- meteorological one. Tropical oh. Storm Dawn, oh. located 150 miles southeast of Barbados, is the fourth named storm of the season. Uh, this side of the Washington Post. Meanwhile, over the Pacific, Tropical Storm Hillary is forming. <laughs> it's actually entirely coincidental of the yes. Dawn and Hillary names as the names rotate. It just seems but... like, though, they, they wouldn't have put Barack in there. Well, no, but Dawn and Hillary are common names. Yeah. Well, that's because he'd rather have a puppet as president of no the United puppet, States. No puppet. And it's pretty clear. You're the puppet. It's oh, pre- these storms wow. are fighting. See, that just brings back memories. Doesn't that? I, I miss the old days. <laughs> I miss those good old fights. So, yeah, the, the, uh, so in the Atlantic, they rotate names. Use, they have, the list is a six-year rotation. Oh, yeah. Right, and they go male-female. Tropical it, Storm Dawn is really sucking wind. Now, in the Pacific, it's even more complicated. Storms are named based on location using an Eastern Pacific, Central Pacific, and West Pacific list of names. Man, does Dawn blow. Right? So it says, which are also recycled every six years. So it's completely random that these two names came so up together So it's just, it's out time. of nowhere. Basically. It's just, it's not a bunch of weathermen that are like, hey, 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 hey. This will oh, be funny. Let's yeah. get Don and Hillary so back So Don's together. in the Atlantic, <laughs> Hillary's oh. in the Pacific. <coughs> Sounds like uh, Hillary's going to peter out here. <coughs> yeah, she doesn't have the energy there. Right. Quite robust Boy. in the energy there. A notorious jewel thief with an illicit career spending six decades has been caught stealing once again. But she wasn't after uh, sparkly gems this time. Police near Atlanta said Doris Payne, 86, was arrested at a Walmart around 5 p.m. Monday and charged with shoplifting $86.22 worth of merchandise. What? So she's a notorious jewel thief, but she got caught shoplifting at Walmart. Busted. Payne was the subject of a 2013 documentary film, The Life and Crimes of Doris Payne, that detailed her feats. In an interview with the Associated Press last year, she casually acknowledged, I was a thief. She's well known in fine jewelry circles, and, uh, and authorities say that she has pocketed expensive jewelry from stores around the world. Authorities have said she has used at least 22 aliases over the years and probably got away with, with more often than she was caught, though she has done several stints in prison. Wow. The Jeweler Security Alliance, an industry trade group, sent out bulletins as early as the 1970s warning about her. Watch out! She said when she was a little kid, she walked into her uncle's store where he sold watches. He put a watch on her. Then he turned to talk to somebody else, and she just walked out the door. 
She's so, like, wow, this is easy. And she said that started her life of crime. I remember my first time I stole from a family member. So she's a pro, yeah. and she gets caught in a, a Walmart. Walmart. She was taking, she's a fine jewelry she, thief. She got stuff in the electronics department, a couple things in the pharmacy. And they're like, well, I, she didn't pay for that as she went out the door. Hey, ma'am, you didn't pay for that wash rag. <laughs> Okay. So, and finally, in Philadelphia, the water department there is trying to figure out what caused thousands of cockroaches to emerge from a manhole and swarm a neighborhood. Pat Wall says the bugs emerged Sunday night and have been evading her Bridesburg neighborhood ever since. She says the bugs were so thick residents couldn't see the ground. Water department wow. spokesperson John Delgayo says uh, crews were out Tuesday investigating. He says a sewer inlet might be clogged with food and trash that can attract the bugs, which are known to multiply in warm weather. In the meantime, residents say they are spraying their homes and stomping the bugs to keep them away. Oh, can you imagine? It's gross. Looking outside and your entire driveway is moving it's or whatever. It's just moving around. You're like, wow, this is going to be a good day. See, but the door-to-door uh, pest control people love that. Right. They're all over those neighborhoods. Because uh, normally they have to like go find bugs. Yeah. Look at that. Your neighbor has some of these bugs. You might want to watch out. But now it's like, do you see your driveway, lady? <laughs> it's moving. <laughs> you know it's not supposed to move like that, right? Crazy. Hey, did you hear um, Chelsea Clinton got on Twitter and was Uh-oh. firing back? Um, yeah. Apparently a Fox News host made a comment about her mother, Hillary. It's just so weird. Is um, like daily? Yeah, it's okay. pretty much every day. Fox News, uh, the five contributor, Lisa Booth, said in a Friday segment that the 2016 Democratic presidential nominee would literally sell her daughter, would sell her daughter to be president. Literally sell her only child to be president. That's how just messed up backwards Hillary Clinton is. She would sell her daughter. That they said they w- she would sell her daughter for a vote. For one single vote? Well, no, she'd probably no. Nah, you gotta you gotta get a good ROI, right? You gotta get at least a city worth of. Votes. It's an ROC return it's, on it's your, your Chelsea. Own kid. Come on. So then Chelsea, I mean, imagine that conversation when Chelsea calls her mom and is like, "Mom, you really wouldn't sell me, would you?" Was the city of Philadelphia worth me? Yeah. Is Ooh. that equal, mom? Come on. Is that equal? So here, here's some audio of. Hillary's response back to Chelsea when Chelsea asked, Mom, would you sell me to win the presidency? (coughs) Excuse me. Mm. Mom? 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 Mom, you're not answering me. By the way, that is the best way to get out of something. Just start coughing uncontrollably. that's it works for her. You don't have to answer. Except, yeah. So, you know. Poor Chelsea. No, but then Chelsea came back and said, no, she wouldn't. This was actually her Twitter. No, she wouldn't. She's actually responding to Lisa Booth. Oh, no, she wouldn't. (laughs) I've never doubted and always known that I was the most important part of her life. Hmm. That's cool. Yeah. Now as a mom, I'm even more grateful to my mom. And she never would sell me. I mean, lease me? Sure. Rent me out, maybe. Maybe on an internship sort of basis. She would never sell me. How do you... Does everybody realize Hillary's out of the race? No, they don't. So we need to probably quit talking about her. We don't end. She wouldn't sell her her child. She wouldn't. Says who? And Obama's not the president anymore. Yeah. He keeps being brought up too. I know. It's like, really? I thought he was on vacation still. (laughs) (laughs) It's No, it's President Trump now. And 
he's already sold his children. Well. I mean, in a good way. Right. Yeah. I just don't know if people have gotten used to saying President Trump yet. Yeah, it's hard. He's He's got so much going for him. Did you see uh, the uh, America's Got Talent last night? Uh, no. He danced on America's Got Talent. Was it someone impersonating him? I don't think so. You think it was actually him? Oh, yeah. You've got to see it because he had four Secret Service background dancers, backup <laughs> dancers, and they were yeah. shaking it. It was amazing. Hey, oh, wow. if he would do WWE appearances, why wouldn't he do America's Got Talent? Right. Totally. I am usually not into watching that. Uh-huh. But when I walked in and saw Trump dancing with his tie hanging down. Was it like way low? It was lower than – but he, it was the real guy. Scotch tape holding it together? I didn't see any scotch tape because okay. he was moving too fast. Right. And by the way, his Secret Service detail, they've got the moves. You know who Paula Abdul is? I've heard the name before. Yeah. They're better dancers than she is. Oh, wow. It's huge. Huge. Man, I'm telling you, good stuff. Good stuff. Hey, next up, we're going to be talking about clear thinking. Clear thinking about the hard issues. How do we sort through all the chaos and uh, misinformation going around? Stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Although the Pledge of Allegiance says that we are one nation under God, it seems our country is more divided than ever. But what are the top five things that drive our country apart more than ever? And uh, how can we create clearer thinking about those five issues? Well, here to talk to us about uh, about it today is uh, Professor uh, Peter Schuck, Professor of Law Emeritus at Yale University, and is the author of a, a new book, One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divides Us. And we're excited to have you here, Peter. Thank you for your time. Oh, thank you. What a great... Um, I think undertaking. Boy, the book, incredibly detailed, taking on some of the biggest issues that we face. But uh, the thing I think that most interested me about the book and the title is clearer thinking. It seems like we have got anything but clarity today. (laughs) Yeah, well, let me mention, can I mention two things about your intro that I I want to refine a little bit? One is that um, we are not more... Uh, sharply divided today than at other times in our history. There have been uh, there have been other times like this, and much worse, uh, particularly around the Civil War. Civil period. War, yeah, right. So That's good. I'm yeah, much more opti- I'm much more optimistic about our future than uh, that might suggest. And the other thing is, these are not the five uh, most important issues, uh, um, uh, but they are very important ones and ones on which we're uh, very sharply divided. And I mean, they really are complex. And one of the things I noticed in your book is about the complexity. Uh, first, I guess, help us understand what you mean by clarity. I know as a professor, you, you've created a pretty clear definition of, of and the points that create clarity. What, what do we need to have a clearer view of these issues? Okay, well, I, I discussed this in the introductory chapter, and uh, clear thinking to me um, means, uh, first of all, an open-mindedness. That is uh, a, 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 an admission that we uh, don't know as much as we think we know, and things about which we feel the most confident are often wrong. So it's, it's kind of an attitude. 
And then in terms of uh, uh, the thinking itself, um, we need uh, 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 to be clear about uh, the facts, which is extremely difficult to mm. do, and uh, we ought to be more humble about uh, uh, our knowledge and grasp of the facts, um, because mo- many of the most relevant facts we don't understand very well yeah. uh, what, before we make up our opinions. Uh, second is to be clear of the values that uh, animate us in thinking about issues, and uh, in my view, um, there's, there ought to be a very clear, uh, powerful relationship between the facts and, and our values. We, we often start with our values when, in fact, we ought to be starting with uh, clearer understanding of the facts, and then our values should be molded to that, except in areas like religion, which, of course, is so important at being BYU. Right. Uh, there, you know, the values are, you start with a certain stipulation of, uh, of uh, religious values, and uh, the empiricism is, uh, is less important. But in the kinds of issues I'm discussing, uh, the, the facts are, ought to be, are and ought to be, in my view, right. uh, very critical to make up our minds about what we believe. Especially because we, it seems like we, the facts are the last. Some people know the facts, but you have to actually actively research, almost like you like you did in your book, to get to all of the facts of of any situation or any condition we're fighting. Right, and in today's climate, in today's political climate, uh, the facts have been dis- disparaged uh, uh, with the you know the, the epithet of fake news and, and so forth, and mm. that's extraordinarily. Uh, uh, damaging, corrosive uh, uh, aspect to current debates. There are facts. The facts are diff- difficult uh, to find, and uh, people would certainly interpret facts differently. All that's fine, but uh, to say that there are no facts or that the facts that uh, people who have studied uh, these things for their entire lives are just uh, camouflage is very, very pernicious. Mm. I agree. So, so the, you're talking about clarity is created by open-mindedness, facts, values, and uh, what else? What and else? Then, and, and then the other thing is the recognition of trade-offs. Hmm. Uh, that almost every, not almost every difficult issue um, uh, involves very severe trade-offs between values or among values, because sometimes there are more than two. Um, and we need to be very clear what those trade-offs are. And I think people tend to gravitate toward their opinions without considering the trade-offs that uh, are necessarily uh, um, necessary to arriving at a wise, uh, wise decision. So clarifying what those trade-offs are and then making up your mind as to, as to the terms on which you trade off different values is, uh, is crucial to clear thinking. Oh, yeah. And again, boy, when you put it this way, it is really no wonder we struggle on so many issues because open-mindedness isn't necessarily there because, like you said, we tend to gravitate towards our own opinion. We don't necessarily have all the facts. Some of the facts are skewed. Some are hidden. Some are just uh, even – and I, I love how you bring it up in, in certain issues like on the topic of poverty. We don't even know necessarily how to define the issue to actually know what facts we're talking about. Right. Defining and measuring is very uh... – is very tricky. There are better or worse ways to define and measure. I'm not suggesting that all opinions on this are equal. They're not. But uh, but you need to you need to be clear about what you're measuring, what you're defining before you can 
proceed proceed coherently to to uh, think about. Mm. Walk us through now um, what you would say are the five. The, the I guess the five hard issues that divide us. I mean, there's obviously dozens and dozens of others, but what are what are the what are the five that you take on in the book? Yeah. Okay. Um, I should say that, that I, I have a short discussion in the intro as to why I selected these rather than others. It's not necessarily because they're the most important, though I think they are ext- all extremely important. Right. Uh, but I don't take on climate change, for example, because I think. The facts surrounding climate change are too technical and elusive uh, for uh, somebody like me to be able to shed much light on. Um, And I don't take on abortion because um, abortion, it seems to me, is an issue in which uh, the moral convictions that animate positions on one side or the other, there's assuming that there are only two sides, and that's not quite right, Right. um, are deeply felt... Uh, deeply failed uh, values, and the facts uh, don't seem to matter to the people who are arguing about this, or they, or they take the facts as being uh, either ideologically or religiously prescribed. Hmm. So there isn't a hell of a lot. Yeah, there's not a lot you can do. So, yeah. So that's so that's why I didn't do abortion. The five that I did do are uh, poverty, uh, immigration, campaign finance. Um, affirmative action and religious exemptions from general rules. Hmm. Poverty, which of course is very, yeah. very important. Uh, uh, and one of the things I discussed in that last chapter on religious exemptions is the the Utah Compromise, yeah. um, which was uh, which was very hopeful in, in in some ways in that it brought people radically different views um, on. Uh, on those issues uh, together and, and to, to work out a you know a workable a workable compromise. I don't know how it's holding up. I think Utah. so far so good. Uh, I mean, and uh-huh. it did. It, what what I liked about the whole Utah compromise is it, it did seem to cr- show some open mindedness. Um, it was a, it seemed to you know create a strong exploration of the facts. It seemed a little bit more values-based. There was a trade-off. It was still kind of political, you know, wrangling. And But, I mean, mm-hmm. it, it seemed like a step above anything we had done before where it was just divisive. Yeah, well, I think in some ways it's a model for the rest of the country. Yeah. And so I do discuss it in the book in that uh, in that, uh, that context. What? Uh, but I, I, I picked those uh, five issues because poverty is, uh, it, I think, perhaps the most worrisome and persistent uh, condition, and it, it affects so many of our other problems like crime and uh, the, the breakup of uh, families and and so forth. And I discovered that uh, there's an awful lot to be learned about uh, poverty that is highly relevant to uh, the way we think about it and the way we might address, address it. So I spent a lot of effort to uh, define it, measure it, I distinguish it from inequality, which is a very different kind of problem, although there's um, there's some overlap. It's really quite different uh, conceptually and, uh, and in terms of uh, the values that are relevant to it. Um, and then I discuss uh, what we know about poverty. Uh, so it's a, it's a synthesis of uh, the vast social science about, uh, about uh, poverty's causes and its effects. And then I discuss the government programs that exist 
uh, that seek to alleviate poverty, and then I talk about other uh, other approaches uh, that might be uh, that might be considered. Uh, again, again, we're speaking with uh, emeritus professor of law at Yale University, Professor Peter Shuck, about his book uh, "One Nation Undecided: Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divide Us." Professor, teach us to just maybe take us a little bit on. Uh, an exploration of poverty in a way what like give us some clarity there what are the facts where where are we a little confused when it comes to an issue of poverty like you were saying that is so far reaching and impacts so many of our issues okay well uh the first as i said the first thing i do in the chapter is distinguish from inequality inequality is a comparative measure uh whereas poverty is an absolute Measure in terms of, uh, of of defining it. We have a we have a poverty line, uh, whereas inequality is a question of how people uh, fare uh, relative to other people. And that's a very different kind of uh, of thing. Um, uh, so then the next thing is is defining poverty and measuring it, and that's the beginning of I think some real enlightenment because the official poverty measure is, is has been widely discredited. It's been in existence for over 50 years now, and nobody in this field believes that that, that it's accurate or even uh, illuminating, uh, not because it wasn't a good effort at the, in 1964 when it was developed, but just because we know so much more now. So, we, we, so we're and, using a measure that that most of the experts believe today doesn't measure very well. Right. Wow. Right. Yeah, uh, all, all the experts. I don't think anybody uh, has a uh, in, endorses the official poverty measure. So then I go into what adjustments you need to to make in order to produce a more accurate reading of poverty, and um, and they're in some ways a little bit technical. Uh, so I won't go into into that here. They're perfectly understandable for the reader, but uh, maybe that's it's not so interesting what these adjustments <laughs> would be. But then there's an entirely different way of thinking about poverty, which is consumption. Uh, if you if you measure what people consumed in the past and what they consume today as a rough proxy for their well-being, uh, their material well-being, uh, we're only talking about material well-being here, um, uh, then we see that poverty has declined quite dramatically uh, since the uh, war on poverty. Uh, in terms of people's material possessions, their access to uh, health care um, and uh, many other uh, indicia of, uh, of well-being. So in a way, you could say the war on poverty has succeeded in, 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 in that respect, uh, even though it seems to have failed in some, uh, in some other respects. Um, and then I discuss, as I said, the causes of, of poverty uh, and uh, I think the most important one is is the breakdown of families. Uh, that's the single best predictor of poverty. Mm. Um, uh, that is the absence of a, an intact family. Um, and uh, if you want to predict how a, a, a child is going to fare in, in life uh, economically, uh, uh, telling you whether he or she uh, has an intact family is is the key key predictor. Uh, and that's very, very distressing because the trends there are so bad. 
as as you may know, and it's bad not just among blacks, which spawned a the famous Moynihan report 50 years ago. Today, the fam the family breakdown among whites is actually h- higher than it was for blacks in 1960 mm. uh, in the 1960s. The, the Moynihan report. So it's a very 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 uh, tra- tragic. Uh, development. Yeah, we're backsliding, aren't we? It's tough. Uh, it's it's a sad, sad state of affairs. Peter, let's take a break, come back and continue this discussion. One Nation Undecided, clear thinking about five hard issues that divide us more with Professor Peter Shuck. Next. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show right here on BYU Radio. And uh, today we're talking with Peter Shuck, who is an emeritus professor from the uh, uh, Yale University uh, Professor of Law there, and wrote the book One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divide Us. And Peter, again, we're honored to have you. Thank you for your time. Well, thank you. And if if I could just give a shout-out to uh, one of my favorite students who's a distinguished professor at BYU, Brett Sharfs. Oh, great. We'll have to okay. track him down and uh, and uh, then interview him for you. Peter, thanks for this, because when I look at it, and I mean, it's a, it's an extensive book. It's, it's, lo- it's got a lot of research, very well cited, and these are pretty complicated issues, poverty, immigration, uh, campaign finance reform. These are, these are complicated issues. What, what was your hope? Um, by by putting this book together what, and and actually even helping us clarify clarity, um, wh- what was your hope behind the whole thing? Well, the hope is simply to uh, help citizens uh, who care about these issues uh, to 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 think clearly about them. I mean, it's it's, it's part of the title uh, in the hope that uh, our society will become wiser uh, and uh, our decisions as a people, will be uh, more effective in trying to change the conditions that we're uh, attacking, uh, such as poverty or inequality in the case of affirmative action or uh, uh, campaign, uh, uh, you know, wise, fair campaigning. Um, And so uh, it's really a simple objective, uh, but it takes a, a lot of work in order to bring together, as I tried to do, uh, uh, the, what we know about these issues, what we the sorts of information and values that we ought to uh, uh, take into account in, in coming out where we do. And as I say in the introduction, I don't really care where people come out on these issues. Uh, I, I just, uh, you know, different people will come out at different places, but I want them to to do so only after giving it uh, a fairly rigorous thought. Is do you sense that with kind of the the partisanship, the polarization of the country, where we seem to be, you know, split, um, maybe fifty fifty, and even our our media and the way we get our information is so partisan and polarized, is how, how do we ever overcome that in order to create clarity if we're always drinking from 
you know, one well instead of a, instead of multiple one, wells. One Kool-Aid. Yeah, exactly. One, <laughs> one bottle of Kool-Aid. Well, it's very hard. I'm very optimistic about the country because I think more than any other society in history, we are, uh, we are diverse and we have struggled with uh, a conflict in the past. Uh, uh, as I said at the outset, um, we are no more polarized today uh, uh, than we have been at periods of time in the past. And in some ways, we're better equipped to deal with uh, this conflict today because people are so much better educated uh, than they were before, uh, and because we have a history, a long, long history of of solidarity uh, coupled with uh, conflict. And so, um, uh, but you asked me how we're going to overcome it. I don't know. It's going to take w- wise leadership, um, uh, which um, uh, I fear we have less of today. That's a it's not a partisan statement. I think it's a it's an objective statement. I'm yeah, sure well, because it's it's cross party, right? I mean, we don't seem yeah. to have a lot of leadership in either party right now. Yeah, I mean, I'm a centrist, uh, an ind- politically an independent, uh, but I'm very dismayed at uh, at what I see, as I think uh, the vast majority of our citizens are. Yeah, um, but I think we'll get to, I think we'll get through this. Uh, uh, we have elections every two years, and uh, um, you know they. They are accountable for the politicians are accountable in some sense for uh, the mess that they're making, and um, so there's there's hope there. Do you do you see anywhere on any of the issues, the five issues you address, do you see an example or um, you know somewhere we could shine a light on where we see a really effective, open-minded balance, maybe and solution orientation on facts and values, where facts and values are coming together. And actually, and we're and we're we're able to deal with issues, even if it's just in one area or one state or one you know department of government. Yeah, well, that's a that's a good and difficult uh, question. I mentioned the Utah Compromise before in a chapter on religious exemptions from uh, general policies. Uh, I think that's an area where the the political uh, conflict that surrounded these issues, many of them having to do with uh, gay rights. Uh, um, uh, the, the politics, I think, uh, uh, is is sort of grinding toward uh, 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 sensible solutions, as was the case um, in Utah. And uh, uh, it's a particularly interesting area because the market, which is so powerful in the United States, uh, and one of the things that distinguishes us from other countries is the, is the importance of uh, market forces, the market has played a very important role in uh, trying to f- come up with solutions to the problems of uh, conflicts over gender uh, equality. And uh, so that's, uh, that's an important uh, feature of this. I would also say um, in an area like immigration, that, uh, uh, which, to which I devote a lot of pages, um, is that I think ultimately we will come up with a, uh, a reasonable a set of policy compromises in that area. I don't. I think uh, it's it's obvious that we need some sort of legalization program for to dealing with the 11 million uh, undocumented Americans. We need, I think, to increase our legal immigration quotas. Uh, we need to um, increase border enforcement, uh, and uh, uh, there are ways we can do that. I mean, these are these are not. We're not going to solve these problems, but we can certainly reduce them to manageable 
level. So those are those are two areas in which, although the situation seems pretty bleak today, um, uh, I think we're going to we're going to make some progress. And again, in in the book, you bring out and especially if I could just what yeah. Add one thing about immigration. One of the interesting things about immigration is that the political lineup is different in immigration. You have many conservatives who are who support immigration. Uh, you have many liberals who uh, want to restrict it, uh, mostly involving uh, labor unions, um, although they too are split on the issue. So there's enough there's enough uh, of a set of moving parts politically that I think uh, it bodes well for in the long run for a solution. Mm. Give us, as we, as we wrap up, one of the things I always like to know is what's the one thing? Is there one thing that we should be focusing on, Peter, to make sure that we as consumers, we as citizens um, are, are helping to you know, better solve some of these issues and have clearer thinking? Yeah, I think it's an attitude. It's a mental, uh, it's a mental disposition uh, that... Uh, Ought to be uh, less, ought to be more humble about our views and, and more curious as to uh, their complexity. Um, and uh, I think we need that because we're locked into positions that are often not very well thought through. And uh, there are trends in our society that are increasing that, such as the greater geographical sorting out of people uh, by liberal and conservative disposition. So you have, you know, communities uh, which are uh, overwhelmingly liberal or overwhelmingly conservative, and uh, so people don't uh, have much reason to question their their views. So it requires really a concerted effort. uh, But I think, as I said before, that in American history, the the extraordinary diversity of our and dynamism of our society uh, augurs well for ultimately uh, reducing these uh, conflicts um, that we will never solve them. Yeah. And uh, we need to be, we need to be uh, looking for opportunities to, uh, to reach accommodation uh, uh, among uh, more issues. Yeah, totally agree, Peter. Thank you for your insight. Peter H. Shuck, again, is the Simeon E. Baldwin Professor of Law Emeritus at Yale University and also uh, author of the book One Nation Undecided, Clear Thinking About Five Hard Issues That Divide Us. Boy. Learning. That's the goal here, right? That's the goal on the show. Up next, we'll be talking, uh, doing a little Coach's Corner about how we can uh, work through difficult issues in our own lives. I'm ready to go in, Coach. Just give me a chance. Because life doesn't come with a handbook, you need a coach. Here's Dr. Matt and his Coaching Corner. Play ball! Welcome back. You know... It's it's hard. How do you create clear thinking with your neighbors, your friends, when you and your neighbor are negotiating a new fence? How are you going to talk that one through? How do you really negotiate anything? In the end, I think a lot of us, uh, we, we may kind of go quiet. Some of us tend to get maybe more aggressive than we need to be, 
kind of it's going to be our way or the highway idea, or others just shut up. They're quiet. So let me give you a few rules, a few tools to help you as you enter into a negotiation. One of the rules I tend to teach a lot when I'm working with couples and uh, businesses is this idea of focus on your principles, not your positions. A lot of us actually start a negotiation knowing our position. Well, I either I want a fence or I don't, or I want a white fence. If, if we're going to have to pay for a fence, I want a white fence. It's got to be the fence has got to be white. And the minute you're you know you're already arguing the color of the fence, you may be in trouble. Positions versus principles. Think about the health care position. Repeal and replace. We must repeal and replace Obamacare. And once you're stuck in the position of having to do something, you, uh, you've lost the power of the principles behind it. There's reasons why you should, I guess, either want to keep Obamacare or repeal and replace Obamacare. But what are the principles behind it? Because once we identify the principles, well, we want, you know, we want fair coverage for everyone. We want it to be affordable as a principle. We want it to, to uh, be efficient as a system. And it, wouldn't it make more sense that we try to fix health care instead of positions of Obamacare or not Obamacare? Wouldn't it make more sense that we try to fix it by figuring out how we create a fair, cost-effective, efficient system that would work for us? So instead, before you actually start moving the pieces, which we see happening all through Washington and all through um, our governments and even in most of our negotiations, don't move the pieces till you've got clarity on the principles. What is it you're seeking when you talk about putting a fence in? What is it you're looking for? Well, I want privacy. I want security. Okay, great. Privacy and security, by the way, notice privacy and security have very little to do with the color of the fence. Um, Do you want affordability? Does that matter to you? So get the principles down, the positions down. Then another little rule I teach is listen, 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 right? You got to listen to what they're saying and make sure that that there's agreement as you go. Clarify, are are we on the same page? Do you feel that way? If you notice the other partner that's uh, in the negotiation with you isn't saying much, then I wouldn't assume that their, their silence means agreement. So keep testing it. Are you with me on that? Are you with me on that? Also try to figure out ways to make sure that, uh, that, you're, that you can find a win-win. One of my rules is um, if I really don't care about the color of the fence, if I haven't thought about the color mattering to me, then I might – but it really matters to the other party. Then defer. Let them have that win straight up. If, that's, if it doesn't matter to you, let the other person have that win. Because if there's just power there when they see that I'm willing to totally, you know, defer to them on something. Also, before you actually shore up and make a move, um, make sure that you've, you've expressed the, and shown clarity of the other person's position. Don't even just think because you heard it, you understand it. I'm a big believer that you ought to maybe paraphrase it back to, you know, reinforce that you're getting it. Negotiation, folks, it's human relations 101. It's not going away, I tell you. It's not going to disappear ever. We will be negotiating the rest of our lives. Ah, so much to learn, right, on this crazy uh, world and this crazy life we're trying to put together. Well, next up, next hour, we're going to be talking about parenting mistakes, what today's parents need to stop doing, and uh, what we could do better to raise uh, healthier children. Take a break. We'll be back. Stick with us.
This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Man, oh man, happy, happy hot dog day. Time to celebrate the hot dogs. You got to dig deep. Uh, you know, grab a dog, grab a bun, and then load that bad boy up. Put everything you can on it. And, of course, a little dill pickle on the side. Mmm! Mmm! I don't understand. It's Dutch. Yeah. This is Dutch song for Happy Hot Dog Day. Notice how you said, yeah. Yeah, it's hot dog day. <laughs> a little, uh, Dutch, uh, little Dutch music for hot dog day. Mmm. Really is a great day, I think, for all. By the way, uh, the Frankfurter was named for the German city of Frankfurt, right? That's where it started. That's where it came from. And don't just think that, you know, there's only one kind of hot dog. There's, you know, you got your sausage, you got your Polish dogs, you got your beef franks. There's just, they come in all different sizes and shapes. And the neat thing to remember, too, is they're all encased in a nice intestine. Is that, is that is that too real for y'all? Did I just maybe get, a little? Did I just get too real. I don't know. To think that uh, you know, we just take a little sheep intestine, push a little meat or meat mix. Yeah, a little too real. And then you just twirl the ends and boil those bad boys. I had breakfast this morning. Yeah. Um, notice I said had. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now it's gone. I saw you ran out and lost it. Anyway, happy hot dog day to you today. We have got a great show, so much to cover today. And uh, we're going to be talking about parenting mistakes, something we don't do very much of. We haven't, I don't know the Wrong. last time I've, huh. speaking of parenting mistakes, I don't know the last time <laughs> I had a parenting mistake. My wife has a huge Wrong. list. My wife's made a big list of everything I've done um, parenting-wise that maybe we could have done better. But I feel like I'm doing pretty great. I talked to two of my kids yesterday. Like face-to-face? Yeah. Okay. That's the problem. When they get older, they're harder to track down. I texted texted actually two others. So yesterday I talked to four of my six kids. One of my children we shouldn't be talking with because he's on an LDS mission. So he's out serving. So we kind of leave him alone. So you're breaking you're the rules. Teaching him bad habits. No, no. So I didn't talk to him. Oh. But, uh, but so I, I really, I only talked to four of my six kids, and to me that feels like maybe not great parenting. But I played a game with my kid, a board game. Mm-hmm. We just got down and how'd that go? That see, thirty that's, minutes we that's played great this parenting. ridiculous game. It was fun. Yeah. See, it's cool. all about perspective, though. I mean, if you were playing baseball, you'd be batting. You'd have a 666 batting Yeah, I mean, that's huge. When you think of it that way. Hall of Fame. Oh, Hall of Famer for sure. Right. But then that would have to happen every day. You know? I, I, when your kids are young, you guys, you'll, you're with them a lot more. Just know that. I can't keep my teenage kids home. They just don't come home. 
they've got lives. Is that bad? Um, no. Because if they're gone, that's more you time. It's heaven is what it is. It's heaven. So today we'll talk parenting mistakes, what today's parents need to stop doing and that we could do better, maybe a few things we could do better to raise healthier kids, kids that are a little more independent, like those that never come home. You know what we ought to do? We ought to share the uh, disciplining efforts of our parents, and then we should decide whether those were wrong. Maybe you could ask ask the guest whether or not what Jeff's dad did was right or wrong. Yeah, your your dad had some interesting ways (laughs) of doing it. In fact, yeah, we'll have to talk about that. After the news, let's figure out – I'll share some of mine. My mom was very careful in her parenting. Actually, I was the last child, not to brag, I was the golden child. Me too. And so they looked at me almost like I was incredibly special, like pristine gold, like I don't make mistakes. My sisters hated it. So my mom pretty much just left me alone. Well, because you were the last one to be the baby. I was the baby and the only boy. So... Too bad for them because they had to make me dinner, take care of me, babysit me. Fan you, feed you grapes. Fan me, feed me grapes. Yeah, all that fun stuff. Okay, we will. We'll we'll break down our parenting styles in just a minute. Also, we're going to be talking about a man that gets into a fight with himself and then breaks his leg. Huh. That's That's a bad fight. I mean, it's a bad fight when your leg is broken anyway. But when you were only fighting yourself. And you break your own leg. Ah. Then you got to just sit there and think, oh, I pushed it too far. (laughs) What do you think when you broke your leg? Apparently there's a video somewhere of this. And how do you, you know, who do you tell? Because people are going to wonder. Anyway, we'll get to that story. And uh, also uh, a little uh, revisit to snakes on a plane, almost, at JFK. Officer sees uh, live cobras. Mm. Just know that. When you get on an airplane, <laughs> anything could be on that plane. Not only. And probably is. And, you don't know what's in there. And Coulter, if you're on a Delta Airlines flight. Right. Uh, you could be pulled off the plane on certain other airlines. You could have snakes, cobras. You could have sick people. You could have the Cobra Kai. Yeah. From the Karate Kid. Yeah, don't even know what that is. So you just went all you just went all video nerd on us. That's all right. We'll get to that fun. But first to the headlines with Terry South. Terry, what do we need to be paying attention to? The missing sailor from the USS Shiloh who triggered a massive man overboard search in the Philippine Sea, but was later found alive actually hiding on the boat has been charged with abandoning watch and dereliction of duty, a U.S. Navy spokesman reported. Petty Officer 3rd Class Peter Mims admitted that his disappearance on board the Shiloh was intentional and that he took steps to avoid detection. Mims 23 disappeared June 8th while the Shiloh was operating 180 miles east of Okinawa, Japan. The U.S. Navy and Japanese Naval Forces then spent over 50 hours and covered roughly 5,500 square miles looking for this missing sailor. Really? The search was suspended at midnight on June 11th. The Navy released the sailor's name, presumably after he was determined to have been lost at sea. Four days later, he was found in the ship's engineering spaces, just kind of hiding out. <laughs> so, yeah, he's There you are. He's like, yeah, I did it on purpose. Ah, you guys. Like, no way. April Fool's. Uh, your speech uh, may reveal if you're um, 
developing thinking problems. Malomen. Yeah. So more pauses, filler words, and other verbal changes might be an early sign of mental decline, which can lead to Alzheimer's disease. Uh. A study out of the University of Wisconsin Madison suggests researchers had people describe a picture they were shown in tape sessions two years apart. Those with early stage mild cognitive impairment slid much faster on certain verbal skills than those who did not mm. develop thinking problems. This was the largest study ever done in speech analysis for this purpose, and if more testing confirms its value, it might offer a simple, cheap way to help screen people for very early signs of mental decline. This was locker room talk. Certainly I'm not proud of it. But don't panic. Lots of people say um and have trouble quickly recalling names as they age, and that doesn't well, mean trouble. The problem with that research is now, just by reading that, you have people out there worried that they yeah. have Alzheimer's. Uh, right. Um, I wasn't going to say anything, but um, that sounds this like This morning a lot I read like an, an, another study saying it's probably, in the one study they did, half the people were misdiagnosed with Alzheimer's because it's about the certain type of plaque on the brain. Yeah. It causes Alzheimer's. And truly the only way to know is through an autopsy, autopsy if yeah. you have it. By the way, can I just suggest if you want to check via autopsy if you have Alzheimer's, do not do it. <laughs> Wait. Do not. That is a, a strong suggestion from the Matt Townsend show. <laughs> if somebody says, let's check you for Alzheimer's, it's just a quick autopsy, decline. So you see that study, and then this morning it's like, yeah, we don't really know. You know what they're finding out, too, about Alzheimer's is studying Alzheimer's is actually causing Alzheimer's. Really? Yeah. Because the more studies you read about Alzheimer's actually creates more signs of dementia and Alzheimer's in those reading the studies. What? Yeah. I know. Exactly. New Jersey Governor Chris Christie briefly stole the spotlight of the Mets Cardinals game on Tuesday night, catching a foul ball from the stands, only to be booed by the fans and mocked by an announcer. Really? Despite his quick reflexes and impressive one handed left hand grab. Left handed? That's a hard catch. The crowd at City Field immediately began booing when it became clear that the Republican governor was the one to catch the foul ball. As Christie rejoiced in his feet and high five fellow fans, the announcer remarked that it was nice to see him get from the beach to the ballpark. the yeah. you know events of previous weeks. After doling out a few high fives to his neighbors, he handed the ball to a child sitting behind him. What a great guy! Right, That's catch nice. the ball, give the yeah. souvenir to the kid, and usually that gets you some crowd appreciation. Right, you think they said that the jeers should have turned to cheers, but they didn't. They continued. You know what? Did the kid throw it back onto the field? <laughs> no, he, <laughs> he threw happy. it back at Chris Christie. Do you think the crowd would have been happier if he had let the ball fly? Hit the kid. Mm. The kid's soda flies in the air. Everyone would have laughed. Right. He would have been carted off to the hospital, and everyone would have been happier. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. He caught the ball. Just give him a, yeah. It's amazing. But Isn't it's, that, politics is everywhere. You can't even go to the ballpark. But he's a polarizing figure. He's, he's a nice gentleman <laughs> with some really good mitts. Okay. He caught a left-handed ball that was flying. That's amazing. It's a tough crowd in Jersey. It's a tough crowd in Jersey. Uh, And finally, when Greg Capert, an engineer engineer for Cryptane Systems, arrived in work in Louisville, Colorado Monday, he was startled to see the office doors had been shattered in a break-in. When police came to investigate, those surveillance footage showed the culprit to be a herd of mischief-making goats. (laughs) We understand the description is that he is very hairy, has some large horns, and is possibly hooved, said the police department. The goats likely escaped from a nearby farm. On Tuesday, the gang still remained at large. They're still out there somewhere, so protect your doors, everyone, Capert warned. But it might have been a single strike as one goat in particular 
Taylor appeared to have a vendetta against that business's front door. The video is uh, funny. Goat vendettas are the, the worst. The goat just kept bashing his head against the door until, until it shattered. Then he left, and then he came back and attacked one of the front windows. I have a feeling the goat actually just saw his reflection and thought he was fighting another goat. So as they said, they reviewed the, uh, the surveillance video, and it says, For 20 minutes, the goat just sat and banged on that one side until he broke the window, and then he left and came back and decided to break the other side also. <laughs> that is one mean goat. Just sort of determined to do that. Wasn't it half goat and half man playing a pan flute? Could be. Those Isn't are that the... from the Chronicles of Narnia? Yeah, those are the scariest goats there are. Don't you hate the half animal, half man goat? That just freaks me out. Especially it's called again. Especially when they pay, play the flute. Yeah, I'm pretty sure, this is the doctor in me, that the goat was just, he saw a reflection of another goat, and he just went head-to-head with that there goat. I also, by the way, used to a visit... A fawn. Is that a fawn? Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. Fawn Hall. Or the Satter. The Satter is the one I found. The Satter. Yeah. By the way, Saturday was named after that one. Satter. Day. Day. Hmm. Interesting. Things, things you learn on the show. That's right. Go talk about that at the water cooler. That's right. Take that to the water cooler and share it. Hey, I learned that a Saturday is what Saturday was named after. Saturday is the day you get ready for Sunder. Possibly an ego boost. Possibly. Foink! You done dare boosted my ego. Do you like Sunder or Munder better? <laughs> oh, happy hot dog day. Speaking of Satters. I think that is the I think that is the um the surprise meat in a hot dog. Satter, satter meat. Satter meat. <laughs> oh, that's just gross. Anyway, you look at it. Hey, um a little uh, news for you here, a little empty news. Empty meaning Matt Townsend news. Empty news. Uh don't you don't have to hate it. Um you know, everybody's had issues with their own with themselves. They just don't – there might be something you don't like about yourself, but listen to this guy. Uh, you don't have – just don't you just hate it when you're fighting yourself and you break your own leg? You know, it happens all the time. But someone who hates it a little bit more is Ryan Rollins from South Wells, mainly because it actually happened to him. Yes, 24-year-old Ryan was filmed by a friend as he shadow boxed in the middle of the street. He's a, he's a shadow boxer. By the way, usually not a dangerous boxing sport, right? I mean, of all the boxing you could do, the shadow boxing, least dangerous. My shadow is huge. Yeah, you got a huge shadow. It is shadow. mammoth. I noticed that. Uh, but after throwing a few punches, he attempted to up the ante and perform a spinning kick, which, by the way, is not actually allowed in shadow boxing. Well, it might be shadow kickboxing. Yeah, shadow kickboxing, shadow mixed martial arts. Which so, is not uh, the arts, by the way. Yeah, has nothing to do with the arts. Uh, needless to say, it didn't go according to plan. The young man ended up landing on his knee as the rest of his leg broke against the road. Ah! Audio from the scene. By the way, that the breaking sound, I don't ever want to hear again. <laughs> that was the worst sound ever. Gah! That probably shocked some of our listeners, I'm sure. The break was confirmed by the 24-year-old's friend. He was like his corner man. Can I get a second opinion on this? <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's pointing north and you're heading south, so absolutely. Your leg is broken. In my professional opinion. <laughs> 
Remember when you were a kid and like you just put grass on it? You'll be fine, <laughs> Jimmy. Put some grass, rub some dirt on it, leaves. You're fine. So poor old Ryan Rollins, uh, a little mixed martial arts, shadow boxing, shadow mixed martial arts, breaks his leg with a crack and a snap and a crackle and a pop. How embarrassing. He didn't even have a record yet. He lost to his shadow. I know. What a... And how do you... What do you say? How'd you break your leg, Ryan? Ah, uh, just in a fight. <laughs> who, were you, who were you fighting, Ryan? Uh, me, myself, and I. I had, I had to go to school after I got hit by a car, and all I had to show for it was a bruised leg. Hold on. You got hit by a car? Well, when I was 11. And then... Really? When I tried to tell kids about it, they said... You got hit by a parked car. (laughs) Was that true, though? No. Was the car moving? The car was turning left. I was on a skateboard trying to get home in time for home improvement. Okay. And I got knocked up onto the the hood of the car. They slammed on the brakes, and I went rolling off. Are you okay? Is that why you walk with that hitch? Okay, we're watching the video now. Ugh. We will be posting Ryan's will video. We? Do you want that up there? We'll be posting the audio of Ryan's video. No, the, honestly, the video is probably better than the audio. It's The audio sounds horrible. You want the video up? I think if I watch that video listening to Eye of the Tiger, yeah. Because okay. it's so far away. It's not. It's, kind of... it's pretty aggressive, but you know what? We're here to give all the news. Okay. All the facts. This song is so inspiring. I think he just got right back up and kept going. Oh, no, he didn't. No, he was down. When you see the video, he was way down. And uh, Shadow, one. Ryan Rollins, zero. Sorry, Ryan. You done busted it. Next up, folks, we will be talking uh, and actually replaying an interview we did with uh, parenting expert Allison Schaefer about the parenting mistakes we make and how to correct them. Raising our children in a healthier way. Up next. Any parent, and they'll tell you everyone has their opinion on how you should raise your kids. Some people think parents should be friendlier, putting their child's needs first. Others think parents need to be tougher, laying down more rules and harsher punishments. Maybe the answer is a perfect mix of both, right? You know, I spoke last year with Allison Schaefer, one of Canada's leading experts on parenting. I began the discussion talking about the difference between the old-school parenting approach of demanding obedience from children and the new-school approach of being your kid's best friend. Which approach are we supposed to follow, I asked. Boy, see, that's where we got all mixed up. We have to understand that, historically speaking, um, in European-based countries, that kind of colonial thinking of uh, hierarchical power structures where, you know, the home is considered the little small social unit, and so dad is, at the, is kind of king of the castle. Right. I'm supposed to fetch his slippers and pipes when he comes <laughs> home, and the kids are the bottom of the pyramid. And in that... Um, style of homes in the old day, which went on for centuries, you know, roles were really to, to be our indentured servants, to mind our will, and the goal for keeping social order was obedience. 
And that has been our cultural history. Right. So the problem is we are in flux. We, we are now at a time where in the last 100 years, we have seen an incredible surge in our understandings for the need for human rights and equality. Uh, even in the workplace, we're seeing flatter um, power structures. So this is something that's happening across all social institutions. It's just that what's happened with parents is now we've thrown out this old tradition that everybody understood, you know, you spanked the kids, right. or, you know, you put soap in their mouth if they were <laughs> rude. It, you know, it worked for generations. Uh, and now we're saying you can't do that anymore because we understand that it hurts children's self-esteem, um, that it leads to anxiety, that they don't reach their full potential when we injure them this, this way psychically. So we threw out... We threw out all the old traditions, and we never gave parents a good replacement for what's supposed to come after that. Mm. And it left parents in a complete loss, saying, so you're telling us that parenting is important and that environment matters, but you aren't telling us how to do it. And what we saw is the pendulum swing way, way too far the other direction, where suddenly we became super huggy, friendly. Don't cry. Oh, my gosh, you're crying. <laughs> Your little emotions are, are going to get crushed. I don't want you to end up in therapy. Okay, okay, you can stay up later. You know, we yeah, oh, totally. We, we completely became doormats to, to our, to our uh, kids. And so I think we're starting now that we've seen enough of these kids that have been raised um, with parents who did not know how to find that middle ground, you know, they're very indulgent, they're very egocentric, and they're not functioning very well. So now we're seeing sort of the end result of that, and we're saying, you know what, we got to find a better way. Yeah. This, this is not good. We can see that it's um, not serving kids well, it's not serving parents well, but, but look what they're saying, Matt. What people are saying is, take back the reins, parents. They, they want to go back to, to ruling with an iron right. fist, and this really concerns me, because uh, that's, that's not the answer. We, we, and that's, that's been disproved, kind of the oppressive, dominant parent, but then so too has the weak parent, because kids need, kids don't need a best friend. They, they still need boundaries. They still need uh, structure and, and discipline. Um, it's just, how do, we, how do we play in the middle? Yeah, so that... And we think about that word discipline. You cannot raise a child without discipline. It is a requirement. It is in your job description as a parent that you need to discipline your kids. But discipline, if the, the word discipline comes from disciple. Right. It's about to, how to educate your child on how to function in society. That when we are at a restaurant, we don't run around so that the waitress is going to get tripped over and spill her tray of drinks. We need to sit in our seat and we need to use our inside voice so that we don't disturb others that are dining around us. That's to educate. That's discipline. Um, you know, and that's why you know, we heard the whole spare the rod, spoil the child. Mm -hmm. Which has been widely argued about the interpretation of that. You know, the the um, classic biblical was that the shepherd had a rod, and if you were a shepherd and you needed to take your sheep up the hill to eat, you tapped, you guided them with ta a tapping motion. You didn't whack your sheep, just the same way that if you're working with dogs, you don't roll up a newspaper and smack a dog. You're going to create a dog who's angry or, or, or scared. You don't traumatize right. the animal. So guidance is, is child guidance discipline does not mean punishment. It does not mean pain. 
Um, and, and we're so wired to believe that a kid won't learn unless they suffer, because <laughs> it's how we've done it for so long. But, but truthfully, a child in fear, a child who is scared is less able to learn. Um, and so how to do discipline, child guidance, without using punishment rewards, because well, this is the other change that's happened, Matt. We kind of got a lot of parents realizing, okay, I don't, I don't want to spank. I, I, I don't want to do the, the punishment thing. And then there was a proliferation of rewards. Now everybody is manipulating their child to obey by giving them sticker charts. Or mm-hmm. if, oh, if, if, you do your, um, if you do your chores around the house, then you can get the iPad. Time on the iPad. That's like the biggest. We, we use technology as our ultimate lure. You know, if you do anything wrong, I'm taking away your cell phone. Um, but well, this, what does that do, though? Because that, that, Allison, life's not always about rewards either, right? I mean, sometimes you just got a shower. Right. It, and you don't get a sticker and an iPad time to just bathe. I, I bathe every day. I think of another way to make a person feel more humiliated and manipulated and like they're living life on the end of puppet strings than to manipulate them with rewards. It, it, it doesn't work in any fashion. All We've done so much work now on rewards, and we realize that it actually kills intrinsic motivation. So, you know, that getting the notion across that we shower because we need to be clean and people don't want to smell your armpits after hockey right. practice, <laughs> right. you know, that you have to help out around the house because we're a group and we shouldn't unfairly burden, you know, mom and dad who already worked all day. Those things are, are um, natural to a child to understand, and you can't, there's other ways to get them to be accountable for their responsibility without. But again, not unless you took a class or you learned because we don't have a cultural history of seeing this anymore. So, so of course, when our back's up against the wall and we ask our kids very nicely to do their responsibility and they say no, a frustrated parent will say, well, I tried being polite, I tried that new method, but they didn't do anything, so I ended up yelling, I ended up punishing them. So it's really about educating parents at this point, about new methods of how to be a disciplinarian without those old punishment rewards tools, which is pretty much all most parents know now. That's it, we dichotomize it, it seems like. So either I've got to spank the child or I've got to motivate them with positive rewards the entire time. But again, it's, that's just the same extremes as old school, new school. It is. It still goes back to the idea of I have no faith in my child. I must make them mind my will. They must be obedient. Um, and the only way to get them to be obedient is to manipulate them in some way. And what I'm suggesting is when we really look at the way human beings interact, we are wired to be social, relational um, human beings. We love being together. We actually like doing work and cooperating. And so we need to create environments in our home where we stimulate our child to want to cooperate with us. And early indications of this is, for example, why do children walk? Why do children learn their mother tongue? Because they want to fit in, because they want to be part of the group, because they want to do what everybody else is doing. It's our natural inclination. Um, And so we just need to continue doing this. And we see this in much more collective cultures and First Nation cultures and cultures around the world that are less hierarchical, where we raise kids to be collaborators, to, to, to win their cooperation rather than force their compliance. Hmm. Um, and we just have to create those conditions in our homes, which is 
respectful relationships and a feeling of belonging. Those are the two kind of ingredients. Like if you had a Petri dish and you wanted to grow a cooperative child, you'd need to make sure that you had those two elements happening in your home. Um, But we come from a history where parent and child are in a slave-tyrant relationship, which is inherently disrespectful. Um, And so in the old days, the parent was the tyrant and the child was the slave. And all (laughs) we've done now is reverse roles. We now have tyranny of the child who is saying... I'm not. I'm not eating salmon. Go make me chicken fingers. Yeah. You know, and and the parent scampers off and becomes a short order cook, <laughs> which is equally disrespectful. Totally. Right? No. Totally. So it's yeah. It's ever- not about. It's not mutually respectful. So I think you're asking Matt about where is that sweet spot, which is how do we have respect but understand that you can be the leader in the family, have a different role and different responsibilities, but do it in a respectful way. So being a boss without being bossy, basically. Yeah, right. Okay, let's do this, Allison. Let's take a break, come back. I want you to, to kind of give us some keys, some insights as to how we do that. How do we be the respectful uh, leader, still get things done, move, but and also how do we get to the intrinsic motivators with our children? Yeah. Powerful stuff from our uh, our wonderful parenting expert, Allison, Allison Schaefer. If you go to her website, allisonschaefer.com, um, you'll, you'll be able to get access to all of her videos, her, her blogs, videos, podcasts, you name it. It's all there, folks, as, lo- as well as workshops. Um, we're learning. That's the key. you got to learn. You can't just stick to one old method or one new method. If it's not working, let's learn. We're doing it right here on The Matt Townsend Show, helping you have healthier families, healthier lives. Stick with us. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends. Parenting Mistakes, that is the name of the uh, article uh, written by our guest, Allison Schaefer. Allison is a uh, one of Canada's leading experts on parenting, and um, she's written many a book, uh, is also a counselor, a therapist, um, and has been, she, she's basically everywhere. She is the parenting renaissance person. Allison Schaefer, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much. You really, you've, you've done it all. Touch them all. You know, I have to say, um, I have a bit of a unique background in that I'm the third generation in my family to teach parent education. And my grandmother was very good friends with Rudolf Dreikers, who wrote a book called Children the Challenge, which is still, it was written in 1963. It was the book I was raised on. Wow. And um, and he actually counseled my family as a, a demonstration family to help therapists and social workers learn how to work with families. Um, and so I really got early exposure to a lot of the greats. And, um, you know, his book, that, that first book, Children the Challenge, is actually still considered by the Library of Congress to be one of the most uh, seminal works in child guidance of the century. Hmm. It's been translated into a lot of different languages. And when I was first approached to write a parenting book, I said, why? Why doesn't everyone just read Children the Challenge? And they said, because it's old. It's so old. So I wrote, Honey, I Wrecked the Kids, is sort of my like tip-of-the-hat modern um, version of some of the great uh, writing and thinking of Dreikers. And 
he was a colleague and student of of uh, Alfred Adler and yeah. Adler, Sigmund Freud, and Carl Jung were the three great minds that that really brought modern psychology to the fore. So, in a sense, I'm I'm I kind of have direct lineage to some of this yeah. thinking. I I don't claim any of this to be my own thoughts. The way I present it is modern and unique. I mean, there was no iPads back in you know this right. It's new. It's new applications to old theories, but these are well thought out, well researched ideas. It's really not a modern thing. It's just finally society is ready to accept some of these concepts that would have been very hard to 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 sell to the larger masses back when women didn't even have the right to vote. Now we're you know saying that kids should have rights. That's that would have you know it's mind boggling back then. But we're ripe and ready for this message now. Well, we totally are. In fact, um, the idea is just basically you're going to be a respectful leader. You're still going to be in charge as the parent, but you're going to do so with honor and respect. You're going to model respect um, and teach us how to do that. So our job is to socialize our children so that they can function in the world. That's really what parenting is about, preparing them so that they can enter the, the and meet the demands of adult life, which is those demands are social demands. You are not doing a child any favor if you can't teach them how to work in a group. So the child who goes to a kindergarten class and who can't line up and wait his turn, because at home he's always the center of the universe and the world revolves around him, is going to have a terrible time in a kindergarten class. Then he's going to start getting in trouble with the teacher and then the friends aren't going to like him because he's acting out. We're not doing kids any favors by making them special. So instead, we need to teach them what social living is all about. And small things, small things, Matt, like teaching a child not to interrupt. It's amazing how many parents, as soon as their child comes into the room and demands their attention, they stop talking to their partner or their friends, and they'll say, yes, honey, what? What can I do for you? As opposed to saying, pardon me, I'm in the middle of a conversation. I'll get to you in a second. <laughs> yeah. them to be patient and to wait their turn. You're one of many. You are not the center of the universe. And yet this is simple training that parents just don't do anymore. Uh, you see it all the time. And, and yet I, I guess that's it because parents don't necessarily frame this that I'm trying to teach my child to, to, to negotiate the social networks of life. That's not what we see our role is necessarily. Right. And we and we and we need we need to and you will see that the happiest kids who have the highest functioning are the ones that have had that training. Yeah. So, you know, a small example too, just you know, eating at the table and understanding that it's fine to have preferences. We all do. I know all kinds of adults that you know do or don't like tomatoes or do or don't like avocados. Like we're all unique individuals, but we come together at the family table, and we have to understand that we don't always get our way you know we, you don't always get the meal that you want um so we say in a, in a democracy a, a social democracy you don't always get your way but you always have a say and what that means is it's fine at the beginning of the week to say i'm making up the grocery list does anyone have any requests or how can we make sure that some of your favorite foods show up at different meals so that we don't completely exclude people um you know, but tonight, if tonight is, is pork chops and green beans, you have a choice. You can enjoy those with us or you can pass. But I'm not going to get up and go make you a grilled cheese sandwich and be a short order cook. Right. That's disrespectful to my time. Um, and yet we have all kinds of families who will cater to their individual children and make three and four meals. Um, and, and they come to expect this. They come to expect that this is their right as opposed to um, that their parent is just being you know, weak spined. Well, what a disability. So then they go to college and they don't like what's on the menu. Right. And they're like, what? 
listen, I can give you so many extreme examples. I actually just heard of a woman who is, they've had a nanny the whole time this child was growing up, nanny housekeeper, and the child is going off to their first year of college, and the parents are actually sending the nanny. Now, if you need a nanny in college, you have failed in parenting, in my opinion. <laughs> that is, but, but, they, but in a sense, they kind of have to because they haven't developed him in a way. He can't cook for himself. He doesn't know how to do laundry. He's never been taught. And so that, that's part of what we need to do is to give our, ki- our kids skills and autonomy so that they can function without us as they grow and they mature. Mm. So um, as you were saying, some of those... You know, how, what does it look like in terms of some of those tools? I mean, one of the first tools that I teach parents in a, in a democratic parenting workshop is the concept of natural consequences. And natural consequences is really about stepping back and letting life do the teaching. Um, so, for example, just how many people will fight with their kids over putting their coat on in the cold? Right. Right. I mean, it's a, if we got a Canadian winter, you, and while I for sure believe that you can't let your child die of exposure <laughs> uh, or frostbite, that that would be a role of a parent to step in if there was a health concern. But a lot of it is really just putting a jacket on because we'd like them to be warm. And if they actually stepped outside for a moment in, into the backyard on a Saturday to make a snowman and they didn't have their coat on, within two or three minutes they're going to say they're cold and say, I, I know why you wear coats now because it's uncomfortable right. and your playtime is shorter if you're not bundled up properly. So a lot of those things, if we just let the child learn experientially, they will learn for themselves. They'll learn that when you slip on the monkey bars, you know, you fall and you get a little um, bump on your knee. And it's okay to have a bump. It's, it's, it's um, repairable. But now they have a, a way of learning about safety, of assessing risk. And um, parents, are they bubble wrap their kids, and they don't want them to experience these early mistakes. But it's a very important part of learning for kids to know. You know, jumping in mud puddles makes for wet socks. Well, and we, we almost um, – we worry for the child as a 35-year-old, um, not as an 8-year-old. I mean, an 8-year-old on monkey bars isn't going to have this catastrophic, major, debilitating problem. But right. yet we think as a 35-year-old that have heard every horrendous story um, from our lives and we worry – It almost, yeah, we do. We incubate them so much that they really have no shot at life. No, they're, they're, we have to think of it – and this is where I'm kind of like spitting in, in, in parent soup so that it becomes a distasteful thing to do. We're actually interfering with their learning. We're yeah. interfering with them connecting the dots between cause and effect. And so if, if we're, you're right, obviously we don't use a natural consequence if it's too severe or if the outcome is too far in the future. Like, for example, if you don't brush your teeth, you're going to get cavities. Well, of course, but you're not going to get cavities for a long right. time. A child isn't going to put that together. But they're certainly going to understand if you drop your pee off the side of the high chair, the dog's going to come over and eat it, and now it's gone. Mm-hmm. You know? Like, they will put together things that happen in close proximity, um, you know, if you touch the stove, you're going to get a burn. And so they learn very quickly to hold their hand away from, from the, the stove. They, kids don't repeatedly pinch their fingers in the cupboards. They do it once or twice, and they learn they've got to keep their fingers out of the way or the spring's going to snap on them. So I think sometimes we just jump in too quickly, and we need to let them have some more natural experiences. Yeah. I mean, so nature will teach. That's Nature will. And we know that kids learn the fastest. 
you know, we think we're doing so great with all our lecturing, and but but honestly, saying nothing and just being empathic and saying, oh, it looks like you got a boo-boo, let me kiss your knee, you're figuring it out, you're growing, you'll get it. Just having their back and being supportive is the best way to go. Hmm. And so, as I mentioned, Dreikers and his great contribution, Dreikers and Adler's just said, if we know that kids learn so well from natural consequences and how the world works, about gravity and friction and heat and thermodynamics, can we not take that same concept and apply it to social learning about how we sit at a restaurant or how we line up, you know, to go to the gymnasium quietly in between classes or whatever? And so they created something called logical consequences, which mimic natural consequences, except for it's about the social order and our social rules of living, not natural laws. Hmm. Um, So an example would be um, we need to sit at the table to have dinner. That's how we eat in our culture. If you get up from the table, that is a social indicator that you're being excused from the table and that you're done. So a consequence would be we need to sit at the table um, while we're eating. If you get up, then you're excused and we'll pop your plate away and you'll be welcome to have you know, meals at the next time that food is available. <laughs> and so a consequence for getting up is you're done. Yep. And now the pro- people get that you know, because... You see, the logical part is it makes sense. If I say, if you get up from the dinner table, I'm not going to read you stories at tuck-in. Yeah, it doesn't make sense. They're not even connected. It's not logical to the child. The child just says, you know what? You're out to get me. You just want to ruin my fun. And therefore, it's personal. And therefore, I'm mad at you. And so you might take my plate away and not read me stories. But they will seek some kind of covert revenge to to retaliate because it doesn't make sense to them. So it's really important when you set up a logical consequence that it be related. It has to have that educative function around our social norms. So let me make Um, let me let me give it let me get an example. So um, if if my son doesn't practice piano. I probably shouldn't take his phone away. Absolutely. Unless I guess he's on his phone. That's why he's not practicing. Yeah, they have nothing in common. But so what if, if my son doesn't practice piano and that's one of his goals and he likes it, but he just it's the work that's hard. What would a logical consequence would be we don't do anything else till we've practiced? You might use something called a when then statement. Okay. And a when-then statement is, you know, that together you make a plan for the schedule for the evening. So, you know, we come home, we undo our knapsacks, we have a little snack, then we practice piano, then we have supper. And so you could say in the, nat- in the order of how things happen at home, say, you know, when your practicing is done, then I know you're ready for dinner. There you go. That's, that's, that's one example. Now, notice that when I teach, I try to give multiple tools because I don't think there's always right, a no, perfect right. solution. I think there's different solutions. I know with my daughter, I was unwilling to sit and force her to play because this is her extracurricular. And I would say, look, I get that doing the drills, you don't get instant satisfaction and it can be kind of tough. And I say, but you know what? If we can just make a commitment to what we're willing to do each week, and if you really still hate piano by December, then why don't we not renew your, your um, piano lesson? Mm-hmm. But if you're not interested in doing the work, then um, let's cut our losses. And, um, you know, uh, I'm, I'm not willing to pay if you're not willing to practice. Right. So, um, you know, some pe- some make that early. If you don't practice, you have to pay. You're no, right. Your allowance. Yeah. I mean, and, and I, I, I think, I think, I guess that's the key. Is it's just it's it's kind of consciously making the decision for what we're going to do. I guess most of us are just winging it, right? We we aren't even thinking it through. 
and I and so again, having these tools and understanding that they're at our fingertips, we have to kind of look at the situation and say, what tool would be effective here? And in the case of consequences, which can be quite good, um, we, not only do they need to be let that logical part, they need to be revealed in advance, which means you can't wait until your son's not practicing and right. say, oh, I just came up with something. Now you're going to have to pay for the lesson. Um, that's, that is like being hijacked. You, we need to sit down with our kids in advance of the issue and say, hey, you know, we have a situation here. What do you think would be fair? And we need to include them in the conversation. Um, it's, it's quite fine to say to kids, listen, you got a brain. This, we've got to work on this together. We need to make up a consequence for this together, and it needs to be related, and we need to agree on it up front. And usually if the child has helped you create the consequence, you almost never have to use it. And, and if you do have to use it, they're not going to be mad at you because they knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. You know, so, it's like, so you've said you're going to take out the garbage. What should happen if garbage day comes and goes and the garbage didn't make it to the curb? That's great. Get them to come up with something. Like we're, our brains are old. Yeah, you know, we're, oh, we're totally. not nearly as creative. And when the child is scratching their head and they're starting now, this is again, it's educative. Like so, now there's stinky garbage for a whole week, and there might get maggots. And ooh, well, that wouldn't be good. <laughs> like they've got to start thinking about the implications for their actions. So involve them in creating that consequence. Don't feel you've got all that pressure to come up with it brilliantly on the spot. That's right. And and again, like you say, it takes away. The, the pain of the implementation in a way because, well, this was your idea. You're right. the one that said that you'd go to your room or whatever. They're, no, they're You're not the one. going to take it personally. And right. that's the part about being firm. You're setting the limits and boundaries. You're holding them accountable. But the friendly part is it's not personal. This isn't personal. I'm not yelling at you. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm just following through on our social agreements. That again, part of the socializing process. Yeah. Hey, as we wrap it up, um, Allison, talk to us about just give us like the one thing. If there's one thing parents could do today or focus on today that would make the biggest impact in their parenting to, to kind of bridge the old school and new school, what's that one thing? <laughs> well, of course, I tell every parent, you don't know what you don't know, so go take a parenting class. That's probably my biggest mission, to say yeah. there is all this. If you if you take a class, online class, pick up a book, um, you will learn so much. You will find it incredibly empowering. You know, so you'll see that there are some alternative methods. So I think parent education is a huge piece there. Um, and I think the second thing I would say is, if we're going to truly equalize the power structure in our homes, I think the number one um, tool for parents is to start having something called family meetings. And you see these now, even on the TV show Modern Family. It, it, the modern sitcoms are even <laughs> having family meetings. But this is the idea of having like a place of governance where you decide together, where you make rules together, so that you can see things as a way of solving family problems rather than everything coming down to it's a kid who's misbehaving who has to be corrected. Mm. And if we're having trouble getting off the computer without a fight, let's talk about how to do that better. If we're having trouble getting out the door in the morning and being punctual for school, let's talk about how to do that together. And start listening for the ideas that the kids come up with and implement a strategy collectively as a family. You will find you will win so much more cooperation when you take that approach versus the me against you, me trying to discipline you to, to, to do what I say. It, it just completely shifts the whole um, uh, atmosphere of the family, and you will see your kids wanting to be more cooperative. Oh, it's so true. So true. Allison Schaefer, thank you so much. Uh, great insight. And um, I, I mean, I think I, I'm now motivated to go figure out a different way to get my help my child co- or co-partner with my child on playing piano.
Yeah, great. Well, Matt, thank you for giving it the time. Parenting's a big topic and it often gets swept under the carpet. So I really appreciate you giving it the time today. You bet. You bet. AllisonSchaefer.com is the website. Go check out the site. You can find all of her books, plus some of those uh, workshops, those online classes that uh, we all need to take to be better parents. Interesting stuff, folks. There's hope. There's hope, but the hope is in the learning. Um, We want to figure out a way to socialize the kids, not just get them doing what we need them to do. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends. Uh, As we wrap up this parenting segment, a little uh, quote for you. Don't worry that children never listen to you. Worry that they are always watching you. That's Robert Fulgham. Uh, Don't worry about all of the teaching per se. Maybe spend a little more time and attention focusing on your modeling of behavior. That might go just as long as any uh, as long uh, in their educational process as anything else you can do. Interesting stuff, isn't it? Being a parent. Who would have thought it would be so difficult and yet so rewarding? Let's uh, let's get ready as we uh, next hour we're going to be talking about uh, relationships with Dr. Brian Willoughby, our good friend here from Brigham Young University. This is the Matt Townsend Show right here on Sirius XM 143 BYU Radio, helping you be the good in the world. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side, joined, of course, by Jeffrey and Terry. Jeffrey on keyboard, Terry doing vocals today. Such a band we've got uh, working it out. Palakiko also is, um, he's playing the cajon, the, the box drum. Oh, okay. For us today. we got a great ensemble. And we'll be opening for the uh, BYU Sports Nation show. That's one hour away. we got a lot to cover today, including, um, boy, oh boy, if you want to buy a governor's mansion, you can totally do so. We'll show you how. In just a few moments, you will have to transport the mansion somewhere. There's always a catch. There's always a catch. and um, But boy, if you've ever wanted to be a governor or be in a governor's mansion, this is this is exciting news for you. We'll get to that. Also, of course, um, be talking about the stolen motorboat that crashes into a house. Hmm. It's amazing what's happening nowadays. Will the brakes go out? Yeah. It's just so hard to, to put on the brakes on those motorboats. Once they get going at a high velocity. By the way, are you noticing all these people now are – they don't even water ski anymore. They surf behind their boats. Just grab a board and – You grab huh. a board. You It used to be that the boat was flooding when you would create a wake as big as, as these boats do. But they take on a lot of water in their ballast and then that lowers the the – the prop and then the prop creates a really nice little wave and people just surf on it. You don't even need a rope anymore. It's amazing. My I'm, leg once slipped into the propeller of a boat. Really? The propeller was not on. Yeah, you were But in the, then I required stitches. Well, you were in the driveway, weren't you? <laughs> I remember uh playing the game Batman. No, what was it called? Uh Aquaman behind a boat. 
Uh, it was a crazy little game. Everybody jumps out of the boat in a straight line, but it's an inboard motor, so you're not near the prop. And then the the guy just kind of guides the boat uh, f- back to the people, and you try to climb on the back of the boat while the boat's going like two miles an hour. Worst game I've ever done. Scary. Asphyxiated. I, I pretty much was asphyxiated. <laughs> and uh, by the time you're done, your swimsuit's off, and you're the. You, you, I mean, everyone's climbing over you. That Plus, just got awkward. Totally got awkward. Plus, you jump out of the boat. Oh, we called it Baywatch. I only played it once. And then I vowed on my way to the hospital to fix my neck from whiplash. I'll never play that game again. So never wait, playing it again. You did a slow motion run through the sand? Uh-huh. Hmm. Yeah. With my body just shaking. Shaking. Little beach shake. Hey, uh, we'll be talking boating today. We'll also be talking about hot, do- hot dog day. Today is the day. Celebrating the Frankfurter. Ooh, Simon and Garfunkel. Is this Simon and Garfunkel hot dog song? It's made out of animal odds and ends. (laughs) The particle board of meat. (laughs) I have a feeling that's not going to sell a lot of hot dogs. Hot dogs, the particle board of meat. It's made of lots of bits of animals. Where do you find these songs? Julie Rose has somebody up against the wall here outside the studio. Don't hit him, Julie. Don't hit him. Julie Rose, the host of uh, Top of Mind, which is you can hear later in the day. What is it? uh, Three to five Eastern time? You don't listen, do you? Well, I just don't know the Eastern time. (laughs) Trying to do the math. It's uh, Uh, Look, I don't do math. Hello, I'm not that kind of doctor. We got a great show today. Also, we're going to be talking with Brian Willoughby, um, our BYU professor and uh, marriage and family relationships expert. He'll be coming in talking about why relationships are like working out. It's like a workout. And I've noticed it. Uh, I've seen Jeff on the phone with his wife just sweating like crazy. It's like a total workout for you, Jeff. What? You heard me. By the way, Willoughby, it's yeah. a great name to like shout in frustration. You know, like when somebody's crossed you or ruined something for you. Willoughby! Really? Shaking your fists in the air. Yeah. But what if his name's not Willoughby? Like Newman. Newman's another good one. Oh, yeah. Newman! Newman. Anyway, got a great show for you. So much to do. Also, BYU Sports Nation, we'll, we'll go uh, talk to them, find out what's coming up on their show at the top of the hour. Plus, of course, a hero story. And there are many, many heroes in this world. And uh, we like to show those to you so you have some hope and some empty news. Lots to cover. But first, let's get to the headlines with Terry South. Find out what's going on around the rest of the country. New research shows nearly half of high school seniors graduated with A averages up sharply, up sharply since the late 90s. The good news on America's report cards, more high school teachers are hounding out A's. But the bad news is the students aren't necessarily learning more. Oh. Recent findings show that the proportion of high school seniors graduating with an A average that includes A- minus or A+, plus, has grown sharply over the past generation, even as average SAT scores have fallen. In 1998, it was 38.9%. By last year, it had grown to 47%. So, nearly half of America's class of 2016 are A average students. Meanwhile, their average SAT scores fell from 1,026 to 1,002. 
Oh, boy. So the grade, more A's are given, but the SAT scores keep dropping. Yeah, so apparently the teachers are they're giving more A's to probably please parents and their districts or something. So the revelation comes as the USA public high schools graduate a record number of students. The average number of high school graduation rate now tops 83% according to federal statistics. But that's not always translating into more college diplomas. A recent study by the Harvard Graduate School of Education found that just 56% of college students complete a four-year degree within six years. And uh, for students who start at a two-year college, it's even worse. Just 29% earn a degree in three years. Hmm. So we're graduating more, but that doesn't translate into more people graduating from college. Well, and boy, are they going to be surprised when they find out how the grades come in college. Right. Mom can't call and get you an A. Yeah. And yeah. If that's what's happening. You can't have a beat down of the teacher. (laughs) Though my mother did call the dean when I was a freshman and took the English placement exam and didn't do so well. Oh, that's embarrassing. She called the dean of the school. Did she really? I looked at her like, what are you doing? Mom, you're going to kill me. (laughs) Then I read, I, I, I aced all the classes. Sure you did. Oh, no, I did. I got A's and everything. Wink, wink. I get it. But, uh, yeah, I told my mom so, to back off. what did the dean, did the dean come find you and say, hey, I talked to your mom? No, she. Um, they just said I could come in and retake the test. Your your mom got you a retest? Yeah. It was, I don't know. It was what a, a great It was mom. a weird English Seriously. essay. Like, here, write an essay mom. in 10 minutes. You're like, oh. Yeah, come on. If you want your kid to have a sun protection on the playground or on an outdoor field trip, at most schools in the U.S., you'll either need to apply sunscreen at home and hope it lasts for hours, or send Junior to school and hope like you can get a, a you can go see the school nurse with a doctor's note to get suntan lotion applied. Oh, oh really? And and okay, so now, now so either apply it with the kid at like eight o'clock in the morning and hope yeah. it lasts all day long, which it won't, because it says right on the bottle it lasts like really? an hour and a half, uh, or. You have to take a doctor's note to the school nurse to have it applied. Okay. Do you remember back in the day when we didn't care if our children were sunburned? Yeah. So it says the Food and <laughs> like, Drug what Ad- happened? The Food and Drug Administration classifies sunscreen as an over-the-counter drug, which means children can't use it unsupervised at school. Oh boy. If you don't have a doctor's note, you fry is kind of what this is coming down to. Some state legislatures have decided this needs to change lawmakers in Alabama, Arizona, California, Florida, Louisiana, New York, Oregon. Texas, Utah, and Washington have all passed laws overruling the FDA, permitting kids to use sunscreen at school of their own accord. Similar legislation underway in three more states. Well, it makes sense because you know there's going to be one kid on the back row of the math class drinking his sunscreen. Right. (laughs) Like he's eating the glue, you know? But does it, though? Does it what? Like the, the idea that you need a doctor's note to have sunscreen applied. Well, I mean, you can't little... even you can't even put like an ibuprofen in your kid's pocket to take later in the day, right? Or he's like a drug dealer. Mm-hmm. So this is maybe getting a little out of hand, right? That's where the state legislatures are stepping in to fix. But there are the there again. It makes sense. There's always the one kid that can't do it. So he ruins it for everybody. Yeah, you ate the glue, didn't you? I was a glue eater. Yeah, yeah. It's. I mean, I didn't eat it as much as sniff it. I think that's worse. <laughs> my mom were like, "Were you in the?" She was always like, "Were you in the glue again?" And I always had like rubber cement around my nose. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, mom. But you I need, can't breathe. You need to blow your nose. That's not what you think it is, mom. That's rubber cement. A bank in Wisconsin is refusing to say how much money was destroyed in a flood last week. It flooded their vault. They had a the Fox River overflowed because of oh, rain. Boy. And um, so the, 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 they say the Federal Reserve will have to replace every dollar 
but they're yeah. not saying how much money was actually Fair, in the vault. It's guaranteed. Yeah. But they're not saying how much. Okay. But they say the bank's documents are drying. Most are backed up electronically, so it's not a big deal. But all the money in the vault has to be replaced. <laughs> you go into the bank, there's like a clothes line up with all these dollar bills on it. Just drying the money. And finally, a tortoise napper is on the loose in New York City. The Wall Street Journal reports a 95-pound tortoise named Millennium was stolen from the Alley Pound Environmental Center in Queens sometimes between, sometime between Sunday evening and Monday afternoon. The educational center isn't sure how the thief or thieves managed to get away with the African spurred tortoise, Ooh. one of the center's most prized animals. A hole was cut in the tortoise's enclosure fence, but it wasn't large enough to slip the uh, millennium, the tortoise, through. They would have had to have boosted this 95-pound tortoise six foot over their head to get her over the fence. <laughs> That's so a big tortoise. They go, it's not like you can just pick this up under your arm and walk <gasps> away with it. They say you'll need a hand Lift truck. Lift with your legs. You'll Lift with a, your legs. a hand truck wheelbarrow or a wagon or something. He's estimated to be 17 years old but could actually be up to 100 years old based on his size. So Holy anywhere God. between 17 and 100. There you go. Well, that's why they call it Millennium. What a great name. Yeah. Millennium, the super turtle. By the way, that turtle went for the best ride of its millennial life. And he canceled his cable last week. <laughs> that, honestly, if you, let's just say you're a 98-year-old t- tur- tortoise, I let's guess. Say, yeah. You're a 98-year-old tortoise. Okay. And uh, now you got some people lifting you higher than you've ever been, hmm. trying to get you over a fence. To get you out. In your head, are you like, woo, sweet? Or are you like, ah, oh, jeez. Just let me be. Oh, I'm often jealous whenever I see somebody carrying my son around. Because how great would that be? To just have somebody cradling you. Oh, what a life. All day long. No care in the world. See, and even that's why you need the car seats. Because the car seats act like the shell. For the tortoise. <laughs> and then you've got your little baby hmm. all locked in with their little soft belly. We've dropped our daughter in her car seat and it protected her. She actually fell in a way that she didn't get hurt. Wow. She was her own tortoise. Did your neighbors call protective services? No. Okay. No one saw. But then we did start putting a helmet on her anytime we took her out. That was for other reasons. <laughs> Just because she's so dang cute. It was a fashion accessory. It's hard to be a parent, but, um, you know, again, we're here to help you through all of your parenting woes. Brian Willoughby will be doing that in just a minute. Hey, uh, if you're looking for a home, I know the home market is, is a, it's a different market today. Apparently, a lot of homes sell very quickly. But if you want a governor's mansion, guess what? You're going to have to move it. If you want to live in the governor's mansion without being elected in North Dakota, boy, they've got a deal for you. All you got to do is uh, the state wants to preserve the 10,000-square-foot home that has served as North Dakota's first family family's home for 57 years. And uh, while making way for a larger $5 million mansion, they, they need to move the home, and uh, so they need somebody to come pick it up and buy it. But that means all you've got to do is move it, right? It's, uh, it's, it's kind of scary because it's an it's a unpretentious, sturdy, prairie-style brick governor's residence. It's been there since 1960. It's a, it's a really um, – it's a great deal. Lawmakers have been attempting to replace the home for years, saying it doesn't dazzle vis- visiting dignitaries and uh, has security issues and it's not handicapped accessible. It contains lead paint, mold, asbestos. Boy, this isn't a very good way to sell the place. 
Look, no. it's a it's a train wreck. Okay, <laughs> I'm not going to kid you. There's asbestos. There's lead paint. See, a realtor would just change the language there. Yeah, you know, they wouldn't say it's not handicapped accessible. Yeah, they would just say it's accessible to almost anyone. <laughs> That's right. Contains all sorts of paint. Yes. And as well as uh, all sorts of organisms. Yes, exactly. And has that old-fashioned flair, mold and asbestos. <laughs> and because of the leaky roof, you're able to hear all sorts of yeah. nature sounds. Yeah, nature. It's as if nature is in your home. Come, purchase. See this wonderful facility. They need a realtor. Apparently, two people are already re- – they're ready. They're ready to buy it. They're going to jump on it. But then you got to move it. I think it's all fun and games till you've got to move a house. Who doesn't fall in love with a house, but then you got to move it? I mean, unless your house was meant to move. We just watched the film The Founder the other night yeah. about uh, oh yeah the McDonald's brothers and Ray Kroc. What a crap. And their, <laughs> their first establishment – uh, they decided to move it to a different location, but it wasn't going to clear an overpass, so they cut it in half. Oh, wow. They cut the building in half and transported it that way. It's got to be cheaper to move – to just build a house, to build a new facility, isn't it? Not when you don't have a lot of money and you're trying to get a business up and running. Yeah, but the minute you're cutting the building in half and moving it, yeah, what do I know? Apparently, there's money in the banana stand. <laughs> Apparently. Okay, so uh, check it out. Governor's Mansion. It's, uh, you know, it's a great house. Great house. Lots of amenities. We've got so much to cover. When we come back, Dr. Brian Willoughby will be joining us, and he's going to be teaching us about relationships and why they are like working out. you got to think of it that way to stay in shape with the ones you love. Stick with us. Welcome back, friends. You know, if you've been in love and you've had that that loving feeling, you'd think it should just last forever. You know, it's just love. If it was true love, lasting love, it's one thing you don't – you shouldn't have to work on. It should just come natural. You should just mm, eat it up every morning. But the reality is – Relationships, marriage, for example, they're hard, and you need to work at it. Dr. Brian Willoughby joins us. He's an associate professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University and is an expert focusing on young adult dating, relationship patterns as well, also expertise in sexuality, cohabitation, marriage formation, marital attitudes, and beliefs. Dr. Brian Willoughby, thanks for being, thanks for being with us. Good to be here again. So uh, – if you really love each other, it should just be easy, natural. That that is the myth. Is that it, <laughs> blow it have, up? Yeah, if you have that love, that you're going to find someone, you're going to connect, and there there might be a couple little minor bumps, but you shouldn't have to work too hard. If you work no. too hard, that's a Something's sign wrong. Something's wrong. But you, that's just a bunch of hooey. That is that flies in the face of pretty much everything we know about good, healthy relationships. And life, right? I mean, the idea that you can be really healthy when you're 20 doesn't mean you'll have to do the same thing to be healthy when you're 30. Right. Exactly. You have to work. Anything in life, whether it's my career, whether it's my health, we have to work at things. 
And that, that's why I, I love this workout metaphor yeah. when it comes to relationships, that, that we have to go through hard things. We have to work at it continually if we want that long-term, happy, healthy relationship that most people do. I love it. And I guess it's neat to think it would just be natural. Right. But uh, it actually is kind of natural when you work out. Right. Just like being healthy is natural mm-hmm. when you put in the effort. Yeah. When you don't put in the effort, it's not natural. Right, exactly. And for, for a lot of people that don't exercise re- regularly, that workout seems really daunting. It's like and you horrible. do you do it once and everything hurts. <laughs> but you stay in the habit, you work at it, and, and, and you do kind of like it. No, not in the moment. Yeah. Right? It's, it's, it can be hard and it can be taxing on your body, but you start to see the rewards. Right. And relationships are the same way. Do you – then using the metaphor, are there some relationships that actually have no neck because they're so ripped and they have <laughs> abs of steel? Are there some relationships that are so strong that they, that they actually – that they're impenetrable? Not necessarily impenetrable, right? Because yeah. even the most ripped human being, if they stop, what's going to happen? Yeah, they'll all, they'll just it's going to go flat. away. But in this metaphor, I think if you're looking for the most ripped, muscular relationships out there, those, those are your elderly couples. That's They've been true. together 30, That's 40 so years. Yeah. And, and just like the really muscular person at the gym that intimidates everyone, well, what have <laughs> they been doing? Years and years and years That's of hard so work. That's true. And isn't that beautiful? And because, again – Visually, they seem the older couple seem so frail and weak. Right. Except they've been through it all, they've mm-hmm. seen it all, and the, and their love is probably never deeper. Yeah, their intimacy and their relationship is stronger than anything we have. And that's ironic too, because of all times we need it, it's then because that's when we might be sick. There right. might be aging issues. Yeah, you've got that spousal caregiving piece that's that's really important. And again, the research shows us that for for many years we've known that married people live longer. They live healthier, and a lot of that comes down to simply having someone with you to yeah. help you. It's so cool. And a workout partner. Right. Yes. Because a lot of times, I guess this metaphor helps us see our partner then as something that makes us stronger, not something that's slowly sucking the life out of us. Right. Yeah. And, and the key is, and the reason I really like this metaphor is when you're actually doing the workout, it's not fun. Mm-mm. I mean, I've met a few people that like during the actual fight. workout good, are yeah. actually enjoying it somehow. But yeah. but most people, even the, even the most healthy individuals that exercise regularly all the time, lift all the time, in the actual workout, there's pain yeah. involved. And, and that's important to keep in mind is that when I'm with my partner, when we're working out the issues in our relationship, there's going to be some pain and there's going to be some stress. But just like a physical workout, when I know that I go through that pain to get stronger mm. after I've done it, relationships are supposed to be the same way. We go through those little minor stresses. We go through those little minor bumps and that pain so that afterwards we can become stronger. So now then liken the metaphor to the workout. So what – I guess we're building muscle in the marriage. Right. And how do we do that? Because it seems like sometimes to build muscle, you got to break down muscle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so if we know from a physical standpoint, you do have, you have to break down that muscle, tear it yeah. a little bit, Ugh. and then it rebuilds itself mm-hmm. and it rebuilds itself stronger. And that's the same thing with relationships is that we have to go through little conflicts. And part of what busting this particular myth is doing, it's getting us away from this idea that healthy couples don't fight. Right. Because that's not true. Healthy couples do fight all the time. But – they tear themselves just a little bit, right? We're talking yeah. about little minor conflicts and disagreements and you say something stupid, I say something stupid. Yeah. But then what we do, we grow and we learn. 
And we actually become stronger because of that. And, and that's the idea. And this isn't actually just a relationship piece. We actually find this in any human behavior that when humans go through stress and anxiety and hard things in life, they usually become better. In fact, we even have a scientific word for it. It's called resiliency. Yeah, exactly. That's what the stress literature calls it, is resiliency is when you go through something stressful and you've gotten better. And that's what we're aiming for in our relationships, that our relationships will go through hard things so that we're stronger. And that's really important because if I'm going to be with someone for 30, 40, 50 years, we're going to have a lot of those minor things, but we're also going to have some major things yeah. that come along, whether it's a chronic illness, unemployment, infidelity, addiction, there's going to be something that comes up, a major tear, and that's really going to test how strong is the relationship muscle we've built. So is it dangerous then to try to prevent stress and tearing of the relationship? I mean, I know people that choose not to discuss issues or they they don't fight, they withdraw, they hide from tension and stress. Because they think that's protecting the relationship, but it sounds like it's actually going right. to cr- create problems. Yeah, and again, it comes down to those big things that every couple is going to inevitably deal with in their life. And again, if, like you said, if we avoid all those little things and we don't work that relationship muscle, when the big thing happens, it's like if I never work out and I never exercise and I find myself in a dark alley and here comes danger down the road, I can maybe get 10 feet before I'm huffing over and I can't do anything. Yeah. Same thing in a relationship. If I've never worked on the small stuff, if we've ignored all those little things because it's not worth it, we don't want to fight, and we just don't feel like that's important, when the big things happen, we've never built the resources to deal with it as a couple. It's true. One of the neat things about like working out is you can't, you can't fake it, right? So you've either worked out or you haven't. You've right. either, you can either give me 50 push-ups right now right. or you can't. The weird thing in relationships is you can fake it a little bit. Like mm-hmm. people fake relationships. You think they're healthy. They, they're not divorced. Mm-hmm. They're married. They have kids. They're yeah. beautiful. But then something difficult comes along and right. they can't fake a relationship. Exactly. In fact, we're seeing more and more marriages now that don't divorce because they're, we, most people understand that divorce has all these negative consequences yeah. and it's bad for the kids. And so we're actually seeing more and more couples stay in unhappy marriages now mm. than we've ever seen before. And you're right. There is this sense of I'm faking it till I make it. And I want to post. And now with social media, I can post all the happy pictures. Right. And everyone thinks we're this great couple that never fights. But then, as you said, below the surface, we've never really dealt with anything. We've never worked out. And, and that could very easily start on your honeymoon where we just start not voicing. We start right. hiding. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And again, it's often tied to that fear of – If we start fighting, that means there's something wrong. Mm -hmm. If there's conflict, there's something wrong because I chose you and I was supposed to choose someone that makes me happy all the time, that has a perfect relationship. And if a week, two weeks into our marriage, we're already disagreeing about things, (sighs) that's not okay. No, right. And especially if you came from a family where you never heard of fighting Mm -hmm. because mom and dad didn't ever do that. Right. Yeah. I, I, I remember when my wife and I first got married and we were living around a lot of other young couples and it was almost this taboo, you know, in our apartment complex. Oh, you can hear that couple fighting. That's, you know, that's what's going on with them. Yeah, Everyone else is perfectly happy. Right. And they're the rest, probably the healthiest couple now. Totally. They, I mean, really, because they've been they were they were building muscle. Right. They were tearing. They were tearing muscle. Part of the key to this, too, is um, discomfort. We We almost have to somehow get used to being uncomfortable, like you are in a workout, um, and being tired. But how do you get used to that relationally? Well, I think one of the keys, and again, this ties back to this metaphor, is I don't what we call overtrain in working out, right? So I don't train 
all the time. We're not fighting all the time. I'm not picking fights three times yeah. a day with my spouse saying, okay, we need another, <laughs> need another good workout. Let's go. Right? 95% of the time, 90% of the time, I'm having great t- a great time with my spouse. We're enjoying each other. We're having positive interactions. And it's that little time that, hey, me, you know, maybe a little bit here and there, we're dealing with disagreements. We're okay with that. We're working through some conflict. I think that's another key part to make sure this is happening in a healthy way, that you're not, like I said, overtraining. You're not looking for things to annoy, be annoyed with with your spouse. You're not looking for conflict. You're letting, again, in any normal couple, they're going to have those disagreements. They're right. going to come around naturally. You don't have to necessarily go look for them. Yeah, and if it's, I mean, again, if if it's every day, all the time, right. endlessly, then you, there's you, something you else. need a trainer, right? Because you're probably not doing it right. Right. Exactly. Something's. It shouldn't be that tedious. Because mm-hmm. yeah. really, you you probably have significantly more agreement than disagreement, but you right. spend all of your time on the disagreement. Right. Yeah. There might be some lingering resentment. There might be some lingering issues, right? Mm. And again, we can tie this to the metaphor is I keep getting on you know, the chin-up bar and day after day after day I do it and I'm not getting any better. I'm probably doing it wrong. That's right. My technique is wrong. And that's another important thing is this isn't just about, well, fight for the sake of fighting. I still have to have healthy communication, healthy conflict resolution. I have to be empathetic. Mm-hmm. I have to be caring for my spouse during this process. Again, this only works if I'm using good relationship skills while I'm doing it. Yeah. Oh, it's good stuff. Okay. Let's uh let's be let's be thinking. We all of us, everybody out there, think in your head, how in shape is your relationship? Up next, uh Dr. Brian Will- Willoughby will stay with us. Continue the discussion about uh our workout paradigm of relationship um connection. How do we get healthier without uh you know creating harm without hurting ourselves. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you be the good in the world. We'll be back. Welcome back, friends. Joining us is Dr. Brian Willoughby, Associate Professor in the School of Family Life at Brigham Young University. He has a wonderful website you're going to want to go check out, drbrianwilloughby.com, where his latest research uh, and other information about his books, all of his updates. He has a new book out called The Marriage Paradox, Why Emerging Adults Love Marriage Yet Push It Aside. If you missed our interview, uh, we did that, I think, just last week. So. It's a great, uh, great, great book. And by the way, beefy, beefy, Brian. <laughs> it's a beefy book. It's just got lots of great research yeah. in it. So um, today, Brian's talking to us about a new metaphor for relationships. We, we need to see our relationships like a workout. It's our body. We need to get in shape. And uh, you got to build muscle mm-hmm. by kind of ripping it down every once right. in a while, tearing it, stressing it a little bit, mm-hmm. which is what stress in marriage does. Right. And you got to get used to being tired a little bit. Right. It, I mean, there's something about the discomfort that we don't need to run from it. It might right. be a sign that, hey, a chance to grow closer. Good. Yeah, and one of the keys here is that, again, when you do that when you're working out, it's usually with the assumption that, again, I'm going to get better yeah. and I have goals, right? right. Whether I, I have a half marathon I'm right. training from or there's a certain number of push-ups or bicep curls Look good that for I the reunion. Do. Yeah, there's a goal. And we need to carry that over into our relationships. And very few people actually do that. 
right? They don't no. they don't sit down and say, what what is my relationship goal in True. a year, in five years? Where do I want the marriage to be? Where do I want my relationship to be? But we should be doing that. Totally. Right? Again, it, this isn't just about fighting just to fight. <laughs> it's about getting better and having a goal. And, and healthy couples actually will start to do that and say, hey, this year – Let's get better at communicating. Or this year, let's improve our intimacy. That's this year, let's improve idea. this. Yeah. Um, and when you do that, then all of a sudden there's a purpose to what we're doing, right? If our if our goal is to express less anger to each other and we have these little workout conflicts that come up, we can start to check each other and say, hey, you know, we, we had this goal. We just had this argument and I noticed that I was getting really angry. Okay, yeah. I need to try to do better in that. And you're right. reminding each other. You're encouraging. Again, just like you'd be jogging next to each other in the street – and you're encouraging each other and you're pushing each other, the same thing's going to happen. But you usually have to have that goal. So true. And and basic, really, right? Mm-hmm. I had a friend that um, – and I think he's done it since high school. Basically like 100 sit-ups every day, 100 push-ups every day, mm-hmm. uh, 100 no, – I don't know what it is. But he it's a very simple regimen he has done since we were 12. Mm-hmm. And the guy is ripped. Yeah. Now he does – he can add stuff to it. But he – so practice in marriage, I guess – Perfect practice makes perfect, right? Right. So, so part of this is about seeing that we need a goal and then getting the skills and the tools to do it right and then practice right. it. Right, and then practice it. And, and not being content with where we are. Again, back to the idea I mentioned earlier about how stress makes us better, should make us better, but that's only if we're trying to right. get better, right? A lot of couples, again, go through the relationship and they go through little conflict and little issues that they have and their mentality is, I just want to get back to where we were. I just right. want to get past this, yeah. get over it. They have what I call – it's a hurdle mentality, right, where you get up over the hurdle. I'm over the hurdle. And then you just keep going. Yeah. I get over this hurdle and then I keep going. And again, that's fine if you don't want to improve your relationship. If you know it, Everything seems great when you're in your 20s. But again, we're, we're looking for that elderly couple that's really strong and really healthy and has a deeper love than really any probably yeah. 20-year-old couple. And that, that takes this mentality that I want to get better. I want to improve. That every time we go through something as a couple, I'm thinking about myself. I'm thinking about us together. We're talking about it together and saying, are we getting better as a couple? Are we improving? Can I go back a year, five years, ten years and see the improvement? We have a friend just lose their 24-year-old child. It's not a child anymore but right. son. And it's interesting. You watch them mourn and – all of a sudden, I'm looking at it like you've got to be able and ready in your relationship to mourn. Right. You've got to be able to serve each other through difficult issues, mm-hmm. loss of parents, yeah. problems with your children. So I guess every one of these life experiences are additive workouts. They're right. just more things that you're going to work out. Yeah. But I guess, too, you want to be ready for – you want to be in shape for when life right. calls. Because then when the big thing happens – you can still look at that big thing and still improve, mm-hmm. right? So when I'm working out and training for that marathon, every day I'm getting a little bit better. But then I do the marathon and I'm doing the marathon to kind of get better too. Yeah. And, and when we're in a relationship, we're in a family and we have those big things like death or, or one of the ones I use in my class is infidelity. And yeah. when I teach infidelity, I challenge my students and say, okay, we're not just going to talk about how do you get past an affair. We're going to challenge ourselves to talk about how does a relationship in a marriage get better when someone cheats. Oh, interesting. And we talk about, well, what if you start to really break down the relationship that happened before the affair and how it was an unhealthy relationship mm-hmm. and there's things going on. And so instead of just moving past it and going back to what we had, why would you want to go back to that relationship? Right. It sucked. 
Yeah, so you cheated on each working, other. Right? It wasn't working. Let's rebuild something that's even better. Let's learn from our mistakes that's cool. and, and get even better in a relationship. But again, that's going to be so much easier if we're used to that process, mm-hmm. if I'm used to learning and growing and setting goals. It's weird because uh, it's hard enough to work out on your own. Mm-hmm. But relationship workouts mean I not only do I need to get on the treadmill, I need to get my wife on the treadmill with right. me. And so how do we not – I mean how do we get on the same page in the workout yeah. so that we're not working different things and actually being at odds with each other? Well, I'd say the easiest way to do that is to start early and often. Yeah. Right? This isn't something that we wait – you know, down the road yeah. to start doing, even as a dating couple, right? Even when we're first committing and figuring things out, we can start to practice, mm-hmm. right? Because we, we should be fighting as a dating couple. We should yeah. be one of those couples that just ignores all that stuff. Set the tone early. Be okay with disagreements and conflicts. Learn and grow from each other. Even if in early relationships you don't do it very well, which is pretty common, learn. Talk about that. That's the easiest thing you can do is get on the same page really early mm-hmm. And then honestly, if, if you're realizing I'm trying to do that and my dating partner's just not, well, that might be a good it's sign a sign. that there's yeah. something. Something's not right. About. Now, if I, if I am later in life, if I am in a late relationship and we haven't had that history, how can I start to connect that? First off, don't try to do it during one of the workouts, <laughs> yeah. right? So you don't, you don't start running around the block and call back to your spouse like, come on, come on, right? <laughs> right. It's, I think it's a separate conversation outside when there's low stress and what you're doing is you're just expressing to your partner you know what i i want us to get better at things i want us to be better at our conflict i want us to get on the same page let's just start to talk about the whole idea of our relationship and do we want to set goals i think it's having those low stress outside of conflict relationships that maybe are a little uncomfortable at first but just starting to have them. It's powerful. Powerful stuff. Dr. Brian Willoughby is his name. If you go to his website, drbrianwillaby.com, you can get all of his latest and greatest, his research, any news updates on uh, anything he's posting or putting out there. He's doing a lot of good work and helping us all get in shape uh, in our relationships. Good stuff. Brian, thank you very much. Thank you. Let's, uh, let's get to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation right after this break. Stick with us. Welcome back, everybody. We love that song as we head down to our good friends at BYU Sports Nation. We're going to have them translated for us. Spencer and Jerem are there today. Hello, gentlemen. Hot dog, hot dog, hot diggity dog. How do you know that? Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, man. Children? I know, but I didn't know you spoke, uh, what is it? Oh, it's Dutch. Uh, I was going to guess either German or Dutch. See how good you are? I was thinking it was Spanish. <laughs> it's because you only know Portuguese. Is no. that all I know? I think that's it. <laughs> you know a little English, too. In- English. Yes. Well, hi, kids. Did you watch uh, Mickey Mouse Club? Were you a Mouseketeer? Never. I didn't oh. have cable as a kid, so no. Wow. Me, me either. I didn't have cable until I was in junior high school. Really? Yeah. And look how you turned out. I know. Now we're on TV and ruining people's lives. And now all you can do is watch cable. <laughs> I don't know why I talk Remember like that. Remember when cable was the thing? Oh, yeah. Now it's just about streaming services. I know. Like Hulu and Netflix and watch ESPN. Yeah. What has happened to us? Crazy. We're not happy with hundreds of 
options. My kids, would, we don't even we're happier than ever. We don't even watch TV, but we turn it on, and then everyone gets on their device. It's a really sad night. Everybody has background noise television, right? Uh-huh. Like while you're cleaning the kitchen or doing something else that's supposedly productive. What? So my question for you, Matt, is what is your background noise television while you're doing other or things? Just your background noise, right? Um, it could be TV or other. Well, it depends. I really like listening to music, but uh, a lot of times my background noise is or would you be my kids fighting. That's my preferred pleasant sound. background noise. Uh, they fight, but for fun because my, I have five boys and a girl, and the five boys like to wrestle and throw balls and mm-hmm. have fun. Mm-hmm. So that's background noise. And, and then I also – Netflix pretty much mm. is running 24-7. Yep. Mm-hmm. Know what I mean? It's just – it gets me through my day. But it's a show that you have seen all of the episodes oh, of, yeah. right? Uh-huh. I don't need to focus on it. You don't need to focus right. on it. Mm-hmm. That's it. See? What's yours? For us, it's The Office. Oh, I love The Office. <laughs> Do you know how many people – I'll go to a speech and then people will come up after and they'll say, you remind me of Michael Scott. To you? Yeah. <laughs> not a compliment. And I'm, not, and I'm like, I'm like, you mean – you mean um, what's his name? Steve. Steve Carell. You mean Steve Carell. And they're like, no, 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 Michael Scott. See, Jerem has uh, personal feelings about that because Jerem is Michael Scott, right, of Studio B. Oh, totally. <laughs> What? <laughs> he has that mug that world's best boss. Yeah. I'm yeah. just kidding. He's great. He's great that way. He remind me of Michael Scott. Oh, yeah, Steve Carell. Nope, Michael nope, Scott. Nope, Michael Scott, actually. My, my dad does remind me of Michael Scott. <laughs> my dad can be just a super weirdo. But that, that means yeah. that's good acting because he's created a, they've created a character that is... He's not a good actor, no. No, your dad's not. <laughs> yeah, okay. I think I understand. Hey, um... Roger Federer, we didn't talk about this. Eight, eighth straight Wimbledon. Come on. 35 years young. Roger Unbelievable. Federer. Federer. That, Federer. I mean, that's amazing. He's okay. He's doing okay. He's a surgeon. He is a surgeon. He really is. Like, he's the chess player that is three moves ahead of you. Mm-hmm. It's incredible what he does on the court. And. I didn't really appreciate it until I saw it in person when I was working in Palm Springs. Oh, you saw him in action, live. Yeah, yes. Yes. I saw Federer and Nadal play each other in the BNP Paribas Open, which How was cool. a bucket list sports moment for sure. Did you? Did you? Did tears come to your eyes? What happened? Just about. Just about. Tennis. I love it. Uh, an incredible. But just to watch him set up a competitor, like, okay, he's going to put it right here, and then he's going to go the opposite side, and... He's just setting him up to make him look silly three shots later. Sounds mean. <laughs> it's like chess. It really is. Yeah. It's incredible what he can do on a tennis court. It's like now, chess, but an actual sport. Ooh. You just, oh, you just, about half of our listeners just t- tuned out. Is tennis the chess of physical movement and athletic sport? Things we will not discuss <laughs> coming up today. Are you an anti tenite No. Tennis is tennis is the greatest sport ever created. Some would say it's, you, it's, you just lost Jerem. It's one of the greatest sports for white rich people ever. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. If I mean, if you're into white rich sports, I mean, white people rich sports. Yeah. Hey, here's the, the question. Only, might have something to say ne- about that. Only next to golf. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and and swimming, I guess. Right. I mean, swimming is is seen as like a country club sport. Yeah, but come few, on. There are a few of them that are tougher to get out everywhere. Mm-hmm. Right? 
Um, Speaking of sports Mm -hmm. uh, that are tough to get out, we're just doing a little check-in with Spencer today to make sure that he's actually going to make it to softball tonight. I will make it to softball tonight. What time are you guys playing? We play at 6, Jeremy, and I hope it's against you. It's going to be good. It's going to be a party. Hey, what's on your show? I don't know. Field 2? You play at 6? You play at 6? Number 1. Field number 1. Field field number 1. I want to play against Jerem. I hope it's in the playoffs. Oh, it can happen. It'll I want to pitch, and then I would bean you. Ooh, bean him <laughs> with a softball pitch. <laughs> a little pitch softball. Ow! Wear your helmets. Hey, uh, what's, sh- what's going to be on your show today, boys? It's very simple, if you can still hear me. Yeah. And that is how BYU beats LSU, Matt. Mm. And it's not score more points. No, it's gumbo. Even that does factor into it. In fact, the one position group that will not only help BYU beat LSU, but have great success against all of the Furious Five teams. Mm. You have the answer. No, we don't have the answer. Okay. We have an answer. We don't have that answer. I'll just let you know. Gumbo. Spicy gumbo. That's one of them. Okay. Plus Greg Rebell on his new BYU radio show. Yes. Coming up, we'll tell you what it's called, when it's happening, and what's going to be on it. He'll join us, plus another A A cool thing about Canada. (laughs) <laughs> and my 10 and 10, the mm. top 10 coaches yes. BYU faces here. Cool. And Preview of Ninjago, the Lego movie. Oh, wait, sorry. Ooh. Not yet. American America Ninja, Ninja Warrior. Warrior. Ooh, excellent. BYU student who just competed in it. He's going to do, and his nickname's Skippy. Excellent. So join us. And by the way, my favorite peanut Skippy butter. Skippy American <laughs> Ninja Warrior. Dang, Skippy. <laughs> okay, well, you guys are locked and loaded. You got Skippy. You got your gumbo. You got how you're going to beat LSU. What a great show, by the way. BYU Sports Nation straight ahead. Thanks, Spencer and Jerem. Killing it. Good stuff. They're, they're, really, really, that's going to be a good show. And they'll even do some um, voices like that. Skippy with a lisp. Okay, I, I told you earlier I would talk about a stolen motorboat that crashed in a, into a New Hampshire home. It's an interesting story. Uh, early Monday morning, the driver vanished after it was stolen from a mooring uh, in o- Osipi Lake. The driver, listen to this, the New Hampshire State Police Marine Patrol responded to a call at 12.11 a.m. Monday of a boat that crashed into a house. Fire and police department officials arrived at 12.15 a.m., found the boat still running with no one on board. What? I know. The motorboat, a 22-foot-long black 2007 Four Winds motorboat, traveled around 75 feet from the water across a beach and a road, by the way, and landed on the porch of a house, partially crashed through the side of the residence. So there was nobody driving the boat. It was a ghost driver. Ghost boat. Ghost boat on BYU television. There's a film called Ghost Ship. This is different. Oh, okay. This is a 22-foot, 2007 Four Winds motorboat. Ghost boat. I, I wonder if we'll ever find out the truth, Matt. I doubt it, Jeff. The truth is out there. The owner of the home was awoken by the crash, but was not injured. They're still looking to find the driver of the boat. Arg. So wait, he's a pirate now? It's a pirate. <laughs> There's a lot of pirates in, in New Hampshire. I don't know if you've been to Osipi Lake. It's full of And that's pirates. just at the retirement community. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. 
Anyway, we wish him the best of luck. That was intense. Do we? Yeah, do we, we do. We do. Okay. We hope you find the driver of the ghost boat. Oh, I thought you meant we wish luck to the driver of the boat. No. Okay. And we wish the people of Osippi Lake area and the senior center there as well. Hey, hero story. We always like to end with a hero story. Australian police flooded the streets of a sleepy neighborhood late last month, chasing down and capturing youth who had been seen by neighbors running through backyards and vacant lots. Terrified residents locked themselves in their homes as officers chased down five teenagers. The gang is thought to have been attempting a burglary to house in the area, but they were interrupted by a homeowner and scattered running throughout the traffic and nearby freeway. A police helicopter was used to track the gang members as they ran. I saw a bloke running down my driveway, so I ran out and out the front chasing him away, Brody Reynolds told the local news station. Officers jumped out of the car in all directions to gather two males who were running down the street. Two were arrested and taken away, but police were called back to the same location 20 minutes later when Mr. Reynolds found another hiding in his garage. So then I came out the back fence, ripped the doors off the hinge, and screamed at this bloke to stay and get on the floor. His wife, Whitney, was inside with their sleeping baby, Casey. That's where all my rage came from. I don't care what you're doing, but don't do it in my backyard. Brandishing a tire iron, Mr. Reynolds held the intruder at bay until the police could arrive and uh, became the hero of the day on the Matt Townsend Show. See, even you can track down a teenage bloke. Maybe he was, maybe he was the, uh, the driver of the boat. Maybe that's why they were running. The bloke boat. The bloke boat. Except it's a different country. Good stuff, folks. That's the show. We'll be back again tomorrow to help you uh, navigate through life and find the good and be the good in the middle of it all. Until then, take care of each other. BYU Sports Nation is up next.